Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Hey guys, I'm excited to share a little something different with you all. Rick Rubin doesn't sit for a lot of interviews outside a broken record. So when he got with Questlove to tape an episode of his podcast, Questlove Supreme, we thought we'd bring it to you here, too. Of course you know Questlove from his many ventures, from The Roots to The Tonight Show and a thousand other things. But if you heard him on our season two opener, you know there are few people who love talking music as much as Quest. It makes his podcast a joy to listen to. So after checking out this episode with Rick Rubin, be sure to go and subscribe and check out other episodes of Questlove Supreme. Enjoy. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. My name is Questlove. Uh, we're here today with uh, Laia, Sugar Steve, Unpaid Bill, and Bon Tigolo. What up, what up, what up? Hello. I will say that our guest today is world-renowned. Uh, he's a world-renowned reducer. Those are his words, not my words. <laughs> world-renowned reducer um, from establishing one of the greatest hip-hop labels in history, Def Jam, uh, to working with all the greats from Red Hot Chili Pepper, Tom Petty, there's Slayer, there's The Cult, there's Kanye West, there's Dixie Chicks, there's Mick Jagger, there's Neil Diamond, there's uh, The Roots. I'm putting yeah. it out there. Anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the guru of music to Questlove Supreme, the one and only, Rick Rubin. Thank you for joining yes, sir. our show today. Finally. Uh, where, are you, where are you currently right now, Rick? I am right now in Kauai on lockdown. Is that's not a bad not, place to be on lockdown. 
<laughs> do you consider is that uh home for you or is it just like okay if i have to be on lockdown i'd rather be in this particular environment we mainly live in malibu and spend some time here usually in the winter and this year the winter extended because of the lockdown so seemed like a better place to be on lockdown ah okay are you able to operate under your your sort of your creative guys at least uh in in Kauai or are all yes. your toys in LA toys are in LA but we have a, a setup here that's working working well you have uh you have an extensive history so I was debating with myself whether or not to do the normal chronological thing or should we just go kamikaze because there's so yeah. many stories <laughs> I want to learn about your production but I do want to know about your introduction to music first of all where were you born Long Beach, Long Island. Long Beach, Long Island. Is, is that where you're born on pay bill? No, I was just born on Long Island. Shout out to Long Island. Oh, okay. All right. Birds of a feather. That's cool. What was your the very first record that you purchased? I remember buying, I don't remember what was the first one, but I remember the experience of buying seven inches. Um, I can remember shopping for 45s in Times Square store in uh, Oceanside. And uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron may have been one of them, but I don't I don't remember exactly what the record was. What was what was the moment that you realized that okay, uh, I I'd like a space in in the music world, or that's what I want to do? Uh, I don't know that I ever had that feeling. I mean, I knew that I loved it, and I knew that it would be a huge part of my life, but I never thought it would be my job. Really? Okay. What were you going to do? I didn't think that was a. I didn't think that was a realistic possibility. I was going to have a real job, and that would support my music habit. What were you planning on becoming? I was on track. My parents had me on a track to be a lawyer. That would have been their wow. Their wish. Their <laughs> wish would have either been a doctor or a lawyer, and I was always afraid of you, you, afraid you of needles and blood. <laughs> I, I don't know. And then I thought, oh well, there are lawyers involved in the music industry, so maybe I could be involved in that way because I'd have to have a job, but my real love is music. But I didn't know anyone who did music as a job. I didn't think that was a real thing. What were your parents? Uh, my dad was a businessman, store owner. My mom was a housewife. Is Rick Rubin your birth name? Uh, Frederick J. Rubin is the name I was born with, but I was called Rick from the time I was a kid. Ah, no, one, no one ever called me anything else. Yeah, you would have been Richard a lawyer. J. Rubin, attorney at law. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say. <laughs> Esquire. That's a that's a lawyer's name. Okay, I get it. I know there's there's a story that I heard about once performing at CBGB's, and it was less than desirable. And I believe the end result was your father coming down from Long Island, but he was dressed as a cop. Did I make up that story in my mind or something? Like I, I don't remember ever telling that story, but the story is around and it may be rooted in something that actually happened. I have a vague memory of it, but I don't remember. I can't, I can't remember telling the story, but I think it might've happened. I think, <laughs> I think the story that I heard was that you were in a band called the pricks, I believe. And either it's kind of like, you know, a modern show time at the Apollo story where the opening actor or another act brings all their fans down they were heckling you guys. You guys only did like two songs. And then to give revenge on the other band, your dad came down dressed as a cop trying to shut the show down or something that, like that. that. 
Nothing, nothing like that happened. I, that was yeah, not, I, yeah, that's not the story. I the didn't story, know if that was what, an urban legend or for real. That's, like, an, that's, that's an urban legend. But in the sort of theatrical punk rock pandemonium of making a show more exciting, it is possible that my dad dressed as a cop to stop the show, our show, not to affect anyone else because oh. it would have, it, it just created a something. I can remember Brilliant. a time we did a show where we worked it out for the sprinkler, the the fire sprinklers to go off during the show and just create a general sense of pandemonium in the room. And what were you, were you, a, um, what instrument did you play in the band? Guitar. Are you a guitarist? Okay. Gotcha. I, I did. I was not, I wouldn't say I was a guitarist, but I played <laughs> the guitar. <laughs> you played the guitar. <laughs> Being, being as though we rarely get guests on the show that were really, really of age, and I mean like in their in their early twenties at least in New York City, much is much is made about the legend of of what night nightlife culture was in New York City. And because you had like one foot playing in CBGBs, I, mean, I don't know about your history of Danceteria or those uh hip hop clubs at the time, but can you just briefly describe what the environment was like in the first half of the eighties, as far as club life is concerned, like, do you see it with fond memories now? Was it the, the best time ever? Are you one of those people that are like, ah, oh, man, New York in the early eighties, there's nothing like it ever. Like, no, it was like, incredible. These romanticized feelings about it. Yes. It was an incredible time. And we would go out every night and uh, there was very little hip hop at that time. You couldn't really see hip hop. You could only see hip hop one night a week. But we okay. went out every night and you would see um, there was a, a thriving uh, dance music scene that would have had like groups like Liquid Liquid and ESG and Conk. Oh, wow. Okay. You got to that, see them in person? All, everybody. I saw Dude, everybody. what were they like? I, Incredible. Like ESG, what were they like? It was just all around the base. It, it was sort of like a, if you think about it, looking back, it would be, you'd say it was a pretty boring show, but the groove <laughs> was incredible. But it wasn't like a, sh uh, wasn't a show like a putting on a show. It was like people in a band standing on stage and playing their songs. So it wasn't theatrical in any way, ESG, as I recall. I think I saw them play at Dance Tyria, if I remember correctly. Shit. Wow. Wow. I'd but you, we would go, like, if a band was playing at Irving Plaza, we'd go to Irving Plaza. If a band was playing at the Mud Club, we'd go to the Mud Club. Max's Kansas City, I caught the tail end of Max's Kansas City. I saw James White and the Blacks play there. I oh, saw De Devo play there. I saw wow. Wayne County, maybe Jane County at that time. I saw... Um, so many great shows. I saw the Bad Brains play at CBGB's. I saw the Bad Brains, Brains play at Irving Plaza. I saw a Minor Threat play at uh, Irving Plaza. I saw the Cramps, which was my very first technically punk rock show mm -hmm. at Irving Plaza. And then there'd be a gig at the Garden. I remember seeing uh, David Bowie at Madison Square Garden in the same night seeing the Bad Brains after at CBGB's. That would be a typical... It was, a, it was an incredible time to be a fan of music. And there was both this live performance scene of music, and then there was also this incredible dance music scene with places like Danceteria, then Area. Um, the Garage was still going on. So it really, you could, 
you could get very different experiences even on the same night going from club to club. And then when hip hop started bubbling, the only place you could really see it downtown was at Negril, which was a reggae club on Avenue A, I believe. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, I think it was either. Sadly, Avenue now Way, it's first just a Jamaican Avenue restaurant. I was about to say that. The it same? was down a flight of stairs. Is it still there? <laughs> yeah, it's still there, but it's. They barely opened. <laughs> shadow of what it. Shadow of what it used to be. But that's the place that I used to go to see Jazzy J and uh, Africa Islam and uh, Busy B and Treacherous Three. And uh, everybody played there. And it was one night a week, Tuesday, KLB Productions, Cool Lady Blue. And then when it got big, after it got big, then they moved it to the Roxy. And that was one night a week at the Roxy. I went to the Roxy the first night ever that it was hip hop. And it was this giant roller rink with maybe, I don't know, there were maybe 50 of us there for the first night. (laughs) And then it ended up just watching it grow every week and get bigger and bigger and bigger until it it became what it became, you know? So I know about your dorm being Def Jam's headquarters, but what was your major at NYU when you were attending? I started as a philosophy major, and after two years, I switched to film and television because, as I said, I was planning on going to law school. You don't need a particular undergraduate. The degree you have, undergraduate degree, doesn't matter to get into law school. And most of my friends that I liked hanging out with were in film school, and that just seemed more fun than um, than the liberal arts side that I was that I started on. So I just switched over since it didn't matter. What year was Def Jam as a punk label started first. What year? 83, 84, something like that. What were the, who were the artists on the label at the time? The, the only records that I made of my own band. All there was was Hose, H-O-S-E. And there was a 12 inch <laughs> and a seven inch, a 12 inch EP and a seven inch. That's all there was. And then I made my first hip hop record, which was It's Yours, yeah. which, and I'll tell you the story of how that came about, because it's interesting. Okay. Um, if you want, again, if you want to hear it, I'll Hell tell yeah. you. Hell yeah. No, we're, yes, yes. <laughs> we're rabbit hole central. We're waiting. Yeah. Okay. Story time. My favorite group at the time were the Treacherous Three. And I didn't know anything at all about the record business. I didn't know that there were, I didn't know what a producer did. I didn't know that there were record companies. I didn't know that people had contracts. I literally knew nothing other than I love music more than anything. I read everything I could read about music. I read uh, even Billboard, which was a weird thing for a kid to read when I was even in you know sixth grade, seventh grade, I would read Billboard just because there might be a little story about an artist I liked. And it, it, it never made sense. Like, I was never really interested in what it said, but I just wanted to learn anything there was to learn about anyone that I liked in music. So if I saw their name in an article, I had to read it. I reached out to, after the show at Negril, I reached out to um, Kumo D. Kumo D was my favorite MC. And <laughs> said, gave him my number and I said, let's get together and, and chat. Now, Kumo D was going to school on Long Island. So we were all like college age at this time. Mm-hmm. And then Kumo D came to visit me at the dorm. That was my first uh, attempt at being involved in this thing that I loved. And I said, they had been making records on Enjoy Records, which I loved. 
And then they made their first thing, the first thing that came out, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure of the timing of this, but I heard a, a Treacherous 3 song that I thought wasn't as good as the, all the ones that I liked. Was it Yes We Can Can on Sugar Hill? Might have been. I didn't like that might, either. Yeah. Yeah. So I might have been. So I, I didn't like them. So as a fan, I, I said, let's get together. I, I just want to talk to you about this music. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I want to talk to you. And then I said, and again, I was, uh, I had great confidence in my taste just because I really, you know, I truly felt it with all of my heart. And it, this was in a time when not a lot of people were listening to this music. It was a, a right. tiny underground scene at the time. You have to keep in mind, this is, there were the, the first round of Def Jam records, we might have pressed up, you know, 3,000 copies. You know, that might be the, the starting run of a record. So that's how big the world of hip hop was at that time. By this point, uh, is this pre or post It's Yours? Like, what was this it about is, you that made this is leading this is leading up to it's there's no I've done nothing. Oh, oh so wow. he just he just befriended you on trust, not knowing anything about your No, he didn't even befriend me on trust. He's just like somebody cares in a time when nobody cared. <laughs> wow. When nobody cares. That's what right. I'm saying. There you have go. to understand. It okay. was a yeah. tiny little world that nobody was interested in. I was interested. I could speak about it with passion because I had that passion. So there weren't that many heads at that moment in time. So I get together with Kumo D and I say, okay, the records you made on Enjoy are great. Now there's this new thing. It's not as good as the rest. Let's figure out together. I, I, I'm your fan. I don't want it to go that way. I don't want it to get worse. Let's figure out how to make it get better. <laughs> yeah. And let's figure out, I swear it's true. <laughs> let's figure out how to do this. And he said, I would love to do this, but I can't do this. We're signed to Sugar Hill. I didn't, again, I had no idea. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know what, that there were contracts. But he said, we're signed to Sugar Hill, but you should talk to Special K. He's in the group and he writes, he might have an idea. So he introduced me to Special K, got together with Special K and Special K said, okay, I like the idea. And I was already programming beats. So I played him some beats on my 808. Special K said, okay, I wrote, I just wrote this record called It's Yours. I can't do it because I'm signed to Sugar Hill, but T. LaRock can do it. He's, we're, we're related. Uh, and that's the way it really uh, happened by me wanting to work with Treacherous 3, them saying, me not knowing, I, me not knowing anything about business, and them basically saying, this is the guy who can do the song. And Special K wrote the lyrics it was it was essentially a, a like a a special case solo record lyrically what and even lyrically that was really ahead of his time even back then absolutely it was incredible Wait man a minute. Commentating, How come no one knows the story <laughs> just no one ever asked i don't know that special <laughs> no case goes it's yours wait rick are you even familiar uh, about the tila rock situation right now I've heard a little bit Dude, recently. I don't know much. What's going on now? Nah, what's going on? It's now? in okay. I I won't do any. I won't do any justice to the story. I'll just say that if you Google Tila Rock GQ magazine, GQ magazine damn near gave Tila Rock a seven-page feature story. Long story short, 
I, I meet this woman, this like uh, this high society, hoity toity, uh, upscale woman from like the West Side. And she comes to me and says, hey, I'm doing think, think of like the woman, the, the woman in wild style, like totally a fish out of water. Right, right, right. Older white woman comes to me and says, hey, I'm doing a biopic on rapper Tila Rock. Wow. And already I'm turning. I'm like, uh, OK, he's he's trying to scam you like. Okay, whatever, biopic. Because I'm like, what is it about Tilo Rock that deserves a biopic? Three years later, there's a story in GQ magazine that I didn't know, which basically he went into a coma and because he had no ID or anything on him. Think of like Michael Jackson's character on The Simpsons. He winds up in uh, this old folks home in the Bronx. They don't know who he is or he doesn't know who he is knows nothing. I think in about in months or so, his family finally locates him, uh, but he's comfortable with his life at this old folks home. And now they have to explain to him who he was. You were once Yo, this, or you were okay. the first rapper oh, in Def Jam. That's that awesome. was a brutal attack, Amir, too, that happened to him. But the headline I, I, is, yeah. the man who forgot he was his, a rap legend, right. which is pretty great. Mm-hmm. Of the name. Right. <laughs> well, great I, I don't know how he got into that coma, but I do know that he was in a coma and he didn't know who or what he was. And he slowly had to be taught everything about himself. But now he just has this new life in as the young guy, as the young stud in a nursing home. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he likes his life there. And But it's. They say the, that other residents are mostly elderly Jewish and, and Yiddish speakers. So that must be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like the word about like, who's this black guy in our, 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 our mist. And they're like, well, he was once a rapper on Russell Simmons label. And like that. So it's the craziest story you ever heard, but it's, yeah, I was floored once I seen it. Now, now I wish I wouldn't have dismissed that woman. Like that movie has to be made. Nah, that's a movie. <laughs> there great. he is. So you can yeah, see that's him, him now. Yeah. yeah. It's a crazy movie. Wow. And that's, he looks and, exactly the same, by the way. Yeah, he that's does. exactly what he looked like then. How old were you when you did that record? 20? Shit. Maybe eight, maybe 19. I don't know. Yeah. And that was just you on the um on the 808. And then what did y'all track it on? If you remember? Uh we tracked it. This there was a studio that advertised in the village voice called Power Play in Power Play, um, okay. Long Island City, which was the cheapest studio you could go into. And we recorded it. I recorded my punk rock band there before. And then we recorded that It's Yours there. And um, we recorded it, you know, in a couple of hours, pretty, pretty mm-hmm. quick. Another piece, the reason Jazzy J, the reason it's Tila Rock and Jazzy J was, again, as a fan of hip hop, as someone going to the to the club, the whole idea always of the records that I made were that the f- energy in the club was a very specific thing and the records that were coming out didn't sound like what the club sounded like. That's and right. as a fan, now had had the records sounded the same, I don't know that I would have ever made a hip hop record at all because it was more just, I want to hear this. I want to hear what I'm hearing at the club, but nobody's making that record. So I made it to be able to hear it, but that's all it was. It wasn't, there was no... Uh, I had no expectation that anybody else would like it or that it would have any success. It was never about, you know, you could never assume that in this little world that it was, that we were coming from. It's like (laughs) anyone who was making music at that time clearly did it out of the love of it because there was no upside. Yeah. There was no industry that was built around it. There was nothing. No one knew. 
Yeah. And what was yeah. the fundamental difference between the club and the and the record? What were you trying to capture? Was it just the, I'll t- the volume? I'll, I will tell you. I'll, no. Okay, because even on the acapella version of that record, in my mind, there's a million people in the room do it like because you're the, the king energy. of the ho ho yeah. like the, that that sort of thing like the yes. people in the background. Yes. How many people were in the room when that those party noises were made? Four or five, five or six of us, two times. <laughs> but maybe, th- maybe three. Was that Rock one of those people? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Always me at yeah me Ad Rock probably Special K Jazzy J who everybody who was in the set maybe even the engineer of the session like any people we had on hand to get the the that party vibe. So okay, so let me explain. Uh, how I heard what I heard different about the club versus the records. And I, and a lot of this has to do with me not knowing anything. (laughs) The, the way that rap records had been made and up until that point, those records were made by people who had made other records. So at the time, if you were going to make a club record it would be like um, like heartbeat. It would be yeah. a band. It would be a band record with a, a woman singing R and B. That would be the club record. And then when the people who didn't understand hip hop but understood making club records saw this new thing, rap music, they thought, okay, we'll do the band doing the R&B song and we'll have the guy rap on it instead of having the girl sing on it. And mm. that's what hip hop records sounded like, but that's not what the club sounded like. The club <laughs> sounded like DJ culture, drum machines, maybe not so many drum machines, but some at that point, more DJ culture. It was really about the DJ cutting it up. So if you went to see, uh, if you went to see the treacherous three live, it wasn't a band playing their song like it was on even the Enjoy records. It was the DJ cutting up the records with the MCs. And that's what that's how I understood hip hop was this homemade music with rapping. So that so sense. that's and that's why Jazzy, why it was important for me. Like I would never want to sign, I would never think of doing a a Tila rock record without having a DJ associated with it, because it's like what made it hip hop was the two of them. It was the band, you know, together they were the Beatles. Right. But by himself, it was just a, it was another singer, you know, it was Frank Sinatra. It's, it's different. So I saw it as a group and the music was an important part of for for me, the DJ culture was as important as the MC. Always, it was always both. So that's and then I and Jazzy J was my favorite DJ, and I asked him if he would be on the record and join the group with Special K. That's how it. That's how it happened. Wow, was it hard to because you know the stories that I've heard from Russell's reaction to the record was that it was hard to believe that this white boy made such a definitive. <laughs> black album so how 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 hard was it to convince people that you're the guy that made it's yours like was it a hard sell or 
it, the whole thing was so strange. Like it was, the record was already a weird record. Yes, you Russell always referred to it as more black than anything else. But to me, it was just more representative of the club. You know, it was more like, it was like a documentary of what I experienced going to the club. All right. So since we're talking about your 808 period, and I guess our listeners, it should be noted that really, I mean, yes, I know that there's a tie between like you and Arthur Baker. That Tila Rock single was like sort of a cross between Def Jam and wasn't start uh, whatever. Uh, party time. Party time. Wasn't that one of the Arthur Baker's uh, offspring labels so, as well? And the way I could tell you how that happened as well, which was I was going to put it out independently myself, the way I put out my punk rock records with mm-hmm. Nine Nine Records, which is a record store, really cool independent record store oh, on nine the nine. Google Street. Do That's you remember ESG's Nine Nine's label too, right? Yeah, yeah, ESG, and they put out uh, Bush Tetras, yeah, and uh, yeah. and and Liquid Liquid. They put out the record that the message was based on, actually. Yeah, I have those um, records. Yeah. So the guy who ran that record store was sort of my mentor in that he walked me through the process. He's like, okay, here's a list of studios you could go to. Here's a place you could have the vinyl pressed. Here's a place you could have the labels made. The labels were made in Brooklyn. The vinyl was pressed in, I think, Long Island City. The covers were printed in Canada. And um, he kind of walked me through, here's people who could do mastering for you. And he just walked me through how to do it because I didn't know anything, as I said. So I did that first for my punk rock records and I was about to do that with It's Yours when Jazzy called me because they were making some movie that Arthur Baker was involved in. I don't know what it was. I can't remember what it was. Beat Street. Beat Street. And he said, hey, just met this guy, Arthur Baker. He wants to hear our record. He's got a label. Maybe he can help us. And then I went up and I met Arthur Baker at Shakedown Studio, which is where we ended up doing a lot of work in the future as well, mixing. I think we mixed half of License to Ill there. And MCA from the Beastie Boys worked there. He worked as a uh, as like a tape op assistant there. Okay. Assistant okay. engineer. So I went up, I met Arthur for the first time, and he was already, you know, like a successful person in the music business. And um, again, I'm still this kid in school play him the song. He's like, this is great. His main label was called um, Streetwise. Streetwise. And he said, yeah, they put out candy doesn't really f- yeah, it doesn't really fit Streetwise, but we could put it on Party Time, which is like a sub label. said, <laughs> fine. And he bought the record to put okay. out. And, and I said, the only thing is it has to have the Def Jam logo on it. Um, Who even created it that came logo? I did. drew that logo. You drew that logo. I drew the, yeah, I did. I, my, my aunt, Carol worked at Estee Lauder in the creative uh, creative services department, and I would hang out there a lot. And I used press type, and I made it on a day that either they were closed or uh, just when nobody was around at one of the designers' tables, um, just experimenting wow. with different things. And, How many drafts? And the reason it the reason <laughs> it has the big DJ was right. to make that point of like the D, this is DJ culture. So I thought having the big DJ in the logo quietly told the story of what the label was about. Was that a one-take Willie drawing or was that like, okay, on the fifth one, I like this one? I tried a lot of things. I mean, I tried a lot of things, but it happened pretty quick. It came in, a, you know, came in a day. I drew it a bunch of like uppercase, lowercase, what looks good and moving it around and then 
Do you still have your sketches of it or are they long gone? I don't think so. I probably long gone. I don't, it's possible that they exist because I had a lot of stuff at my parents' house and then some of that stuff is in a, in storage somewhere, but I've never looked at it. I was going to ask, what does it feel? Because I've heard Amir and and Tariq say that sometimes that they went on Def Jam just because they wanted to be able to have that logo. Hell on, yeah. <laughs> affiliated with their name. <laughs> like, what that's got to feel crazy just from a drawing. That, that's Yeah. Like, you know, I I in class, I draw that logo on imaginary uh, Roots albums that didn't exist yet. Like, hanging that shit on up. On my wall. <laughs> I probably did exactly the same thing. And then it ended up becoming, you know, they weren't Roots albums, but they were whatever it was. It was just like playing with what, how do we say that? What's the name going to be? What's it going to look like? How does it, how does it work? In 83, 84, how expensive are 808 drum machines? Uh, Is that I don't something know that you casually come across? I, it's something that I luckily came across because there was a guy in my dorm room who was in a, alternative rock band called the speedies and he had that machine and he lent he lent me the 808 drum machine that's how i came across it so were you able to program and save beats or is it just like you turn it on and you show what you could do and print it yeah uh you could make 20 or so pre-programmed beats so how long is the the conversation with russell simmons before you realize that you're going to go into partnership with him and start the label officially. I met Russell at a party for Graffiti Rock, that that TV right. wow. yeah. where Treacherous 3 yeah. and, and Run, DMC. Run DMC. Yeah, and I went there, you know, hoping that Treacherous 3 would be there because they were, you know, my favorite group. <laughs> and um, This was like an after party? Still, this was an after party. Okay. And someone introduced me to Russell and I told him I made it's yours and he couldn't believe it. It's just like, <laughs> no way it's like you're white you didn't make that record <laughs> and again it's, but but you have to understand there were there really were well tom silverman was involved in hip-hop he was the only other white person i would say that that i knew who had any relationship to hip-hop at that time yeah but he wasn't making beats he was he was really helpful he was really helpful to us like he was someone another like i had these great mentors i had the guy at 99 records ed Ed Bellman, his name was, and um, Tom Silver. And I had to- Tommy, and I would call Tom's just like, "Hey, what do I do?" Monica Lynch, who worked with Tommy, like, <laughs> Lynch, yeah. it's like, "What do we do? How do how do? What's the next step?" And I can remember his story. I don't think I've ever told anyone. It's interesting why I was excited about having Russell as a partner. I was walking on in front of the dorm, across the street from the dorm, turning the corner. I ran into, and I don't even know, this is strange because I don't know how I knew who he was, but there was a writer for the Village Voice named Aaron Fuchs. Aaron oh, Fuchs. Man. Wait a minute, he yeah, wrote Fuchs. for the Village yeah, Voice? He was a yeah. writer first? He was a, he was a writer. So, Aaron so I don't, Fuchs. <laughs> but listen, let me, let, me tell you, let me tell you the story. So again, it's amazing the fact that I even, I don't know how I knew who he was or how it worked out that I, that I but I literally went up to him on the street and said, hey, I made this record, and what do I have to do to get people to hear it? Like, how do I do this? And this was, it's yours. I don't even think I had the, it was just more of a conversation. It's like, how does it work? How does this work? So now I'm at the stage where, because I was always ha- comfortable asking questions. You know, I'm, I would, 
if someone had information that I needed, I was I felt comfortable asking, and sometimes they would help, and sometimes they wouldn't. So I thought he was someone who might be able to help, and I just said, you know, what's the next step? How do I get people to hear this thing? And he said, you need promotion, and you can't do it. And he said, the only person who knows how to do promotion for hip hop records is Russell Simmons. And Russell Simmons won't do anything for anyone except his brother run. He works with a lot of artists, but he said, unless you're run, he won't promote your records. Mm. So it's like, okay, I'm thinking maybe someday I'll meet this guy, Russell, and at least he'll tell me what he does, even if he won't do it. Um, (laughs) Just in hopes of getting the word out. I got to get to the bottom of this story now. If he was a writer for the Village Voice, mm-hmm. and he too was a you know a hopeful record record mogul, yet you know the story and the fable of of Aaron is that he would go hard in the paint and suing any product on Def Jam that contained any of the samples that he owned. Yeah, I would say even beyond that is that if he knew any song had the potential to be sampled, he'd try to buy up the rights so that he could sue whoever sampled it. Well, yeah, that too. But I'm almost feeling like maybe he has a personal beef with Russell that none of us are aware of because there are other samples that he could have went after that he never did. But if it was on Def Jam, it's like, like, Goodfellas, fuck you, pay me. (laughs) And I always wanted to know if that was, if there was like, a burnt bridge and it was sort of like, okay, well, I'm going to get you. When he told, when he told me about Russell, he was not positive about him. <laughs> it was not a positive wow. conversation, but it was just this, it was a piece of information that was helpful. There's, there's an article that, or a blog that Harry Allen once wrote in, in honor of your early production methods in which you know, it's noted that you have the loudest 808 sounds, the loudest scratches, like your scratches on going back to Cali, like it's just louder than everything. So even like what's your engineering process or just your whole theory on pushing it to the limit? Um, there is none. I will say okay. I like if you're going to put something in there, I want to be able to hear it la- like I want. The idea of having scratching as this sort of background element that's going on all the time is Mm -hmm. not so interesting to me. It's like, if it's going to be there, it should be only exactly when it needs to be there. And it should be crazy loud because in some ways it's like, it's like lead guitar. You know, it's a, it's a punctuation moment. It's not a background sound. And as a rule, I'm not so into background sounds. You know, it's more about having the least amount of stuff going on, creating space where each thing that you hear, hopefully very few of them, sound as clear and have as much personality as possible. And as soon as you start blanketing sounds, all of each of those sounds gets diminished. And I can hear that in your, I can really hear that in your rock production, uh, particularly on Californication. Yeah. which is probably my favorite Rick Rubin produced album. Oh, cool. <laughs> but um, but no, I love that record, man. Like I, when I first heard it, it was just, I was taken aback by just how the way you track Anthony's vocals, like it sounded almost like to the edge of distortion, but not quite. And it just had yeah. like, that kind of grit on it. And it was just really in your face. And um, 
Nah, I, I, I love that record. Yeah. I just wanted to give you applause on that one. So you were you were about to tell the Rock the Bell story, I think. Yeah, I, I I'll tell you, you what I remember, but I but I don't remember the Bob James record ever being in the conversation. It may have okay. been, it may have been something that L had been thinking and wanting to do. Oh, okay, okay, but I don't remember it. I don't remember talking about it. Yeah, I was going to say it's even possible that when it was time to record it, that he suggested it. And it is possible that we were already working on the Run DMC, the Peter Piper song. It is possible. Okay. All right. What was your one of the one of the um, the factors that you also used in your early production uh, was the sound of Go Go in Rock the Bells and in She's Crafty, um, and also you know I'll say that to one one of the things I've done in the quarantine punishment is practically purchase every Go Go album made available. <laughs> and nothing I hate. And I know a lot of it has to do with either the studios that they record in, either it's too clean or it's too amateurish. But Sardines to me is probably the best. Yeah, Sardines is probably the best produced go go record, probably second to Pump Me Up. So first of all, Sardines is such a stripped down song. How did you record Junkyard drop Band? The bo- drop the Bomb's incredible, too. Oh, okay. Yes, <laughs> yes, drop, yes the drop the Bomb's I'll shit. say early, early, Trumple, early Trumple Funk, yes, they're, they're up there. Their mixing was immaculate. But um, what was the process in recording the Junkyard Band, and why didn't you press on further with them? Okay, let me I'm, – I'm going to just – talk for a second about I agree with you the only the only go-go records I like are old trouble funk records other than sardines which I think was good and I want to talk about that a little bit because what you're describing is exactly the way I felt about hip-hop where you could buy in those days the early days of hip-hop I could buy a 12 inch or two every week that's all that would come out that would be hip-hop and Mm -hmm. none of them did for me what the trouble funk records did as it relates to go-go do you know what i'm saying yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's like the the hip-hop records were like the bad go-go records say it's the same it's the same in any genre it's like it's not about the genre it's the way the records are made and in some ways i i I felt like go-go was going to be the next hip-hop i really believe that was going to happen yeah but they didn't make the right records they sounded they they watered down what gogo was yeah the, like the records on island island signed all the bands mm-hmm. and those records are terrible do you think that's because it's kind of designed for it to be a, a a live situation more than a record at the end of the day like a studio album uh i just think the the wrong people were helping make the music the, the wrong people were involved on the recording side Yes. I I don't like how half the Google records are engineered. Not Yeah. I, I mean I love Rare Essence more than any band on earth, but mm-hmm. it just frustrates me that the energy and the the engineering of when I hear them live or even I hear like some of their live mixtapes that's not captured on a studio cut for me. On a studio side, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And yeah. so why was sardines and the word just a one-off 
12 inch. Was there ever a conversation about recording Junkyard as a band or I mean, not as a band, as a full album? I don't I don't really remember. And I think not long after I ended up leaving Def Jam. So it it may have been that it was just like towards the end of the time that I was doing stuff with Def Jam and then okay. just stopped. But I, I don't remember. I don't remember there being, first of all, nobody particularly cared about it. Like we liked it, but oh, wow. it's not like there was any demand for the Junkyard Band, as crazy as that sounds. I loved them. I, I was told to ask you about the making of Crush Groove, the song. <laughs> what? Okay. Tell me the story of the, the making of Crush Groove, the song. What's... I, I was thinking, about, it's funny that this has been, I couldn't, I didn't remember what song that was. There, I had a memory that we did a song with Run DMC and other artists. And I remember right. the conversation in the studio because it was heated. And particularly on my, on as it related to me, like I was very unhappy with what was going on. And I thought it, for some reason, I thought it was a Christmas song, but have come to realize it's actually that Crush Groove song. And, um, and I could never find it anywhere because it's listed as the Crush Groove All-Stars. So All-Stars, yeah. <laughs> so I, it's not like if you're looking back at Run DMC songs, that comes up. Right. So I haven't heard it in a long time, but I had this vague memory. It's like, we did this song, and I remember there was a little bit of an argument in the studio. And what the argument was, was if you listen to the track, should, should we play it? Because it'll, it'll, or at least play some of it. You want to play a little bit of it? The, the track... Who were the who were the who were the other artists on it? Do you remember? The Fat Anybody Boys, remember? Sheila Fat E, Boys. Curtis Blow. Okay, the movie people wanted a song for the movie. They got the Fat Boys, Sheila E, and Curtis Blow on this track that sounded like a track that would fit on maybe any one of the three of their albums. Maybe Sheila E less, but it sounded most like a Fat Boys record. Your Curtis yeah, Blow it sounded record. like a Fat Boy Curtis Blow record, yeah. It's a, it sounded like a Fat Boy Curtis Blow record. So when we got to the studio, okay, do you want to play it? Crush grooving, body moving. Crush grooving, body moving. I was five when this came out. I love this fucking song. <laughs> okay, so what's what's when we got to the studio? The mission was, we're doing this song for the movie. They provided us this song. The other MCs ready on it. And now I'm there as Run DMC's producer, and they're supposed to get on this on this track. And, right. and it sounded only like the beginning of the song. It didn't sound like the Run DMC part. Right. And I said, there's no way Run DMC could be on this. They cannot be on this. It's like, this sounds like a Fat Boys record. This sounds like a Curtis Blow record. That's not a Run DMC record. I love Run DMC. This is something else. And and then I said, well, the only way we could have Run DMC on this would be if we make our own track and drop it in in the middle where it could sound like this is a Run DMC song. 
Ah. And, and that's, it's how that ended. And I was the only one who cared. Nobody else cared. Nobody, you know, it would have just been <laughs> so like. So Larry, Larry and Curtis weren't offended? I don't, well, I, I, didn't even know, I didn't even know who produced it. Curtis I don't know did. Who, yeah, I didn't know that. I do remember Curtis was pissed off after saying, how come I can't be over the part that runs on? Like, how come he couldn't? Right. The oh, breakdown. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the breakdown. Can you talk about, you know, there's there's producer as as song clinician and arranger and and music person. And there's something about producer as social psychologist. And I feel like <laughs> your your life, <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of this weird thing that rides between them. And the great producers that I know run this line that I don't fully understand how to run. <laughs> and I feel like you've mastered it and, and, and in your career have sort of defined what a producer is. And so there are some producers that are, that are beat makers. There are some producers that are songwriters. You're able to encompass all of them and not only in one particular genre, but in about four or five. So like, I, I don't know. I mean, you call yourself a reducer and I get that sort of play on words, but like, I don't know. What, what is it? What is it about all of that? That makes it work. That makes that makes you enjoy what you do as well. Cause that to me is fascinating. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I think it always changes at the time that I was more of a beat making producer, which are the days we're talking about now. I was not, I was not good at the, the uh, psychology part and the, uh, collaborating. I was not good. I was much more of a, I know what's good and you're going to do it my way. Probably for my hip hop, early hip hop days. And then as I started working with more rock bands, I started understanding more the dynamics of working with a group of people. And um, now the most interesting thing for me when I work with an artist is I can clearly point out where I think the strengths and weaknesses are, but I don't feel like it's my responsibility to solve the weaknesses. All I have to do is point out like, hmm, this section here isn't as good as it could be. What can we do to make it better? Whereas in the old days, I'd say, this section isn't as good and this is what we're going to do. Now it's this part isn't as good. How do you guys suggest we fix it? And all of that and is subjective. Then, it's all based on your opinion, right? I mean, like it's it's all how you're feeling. All it is is opinion. Everything everything right. has to do with opinion. It's everything. The whole yeah. job, the whole job of doing this is pure opinion. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what so, I learned. <laughs> okay, so before before I get to the Beastie Boys, uh, well, unpaid bills sort of. Sorry, I didn't mean to divert, but I was no, no, fascinated. no, because actually, my next question leads to what you were headed with. Uh, on pay bill, which is basically whenever you show up and whenever you show up in the credits, two things are bound to happen. And that is you're going to reduce the sound. So we already talked about the idea of you stripping stuff down to just its bare bones and making it loud. But it's also you really introduce the idea of cross genres in modern hip-hop music. I mean, with with Run DMC having their biggest hit with Walk This Way, even with the Beastie Boys, uh, at least in their, their narrative of it, like we were making fun of smoking in the boys' room, and now here yeah. we go with Fight For Your Right to Party. But even with Johnny Cash doing Hurt, or even with 
uh, 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 Mick Jagger singing over Impeach the President, even with the stuff with Slayer or, or working with Neil Diamond, like there's always an element or Kanye rhyming over industrial shrill noises. <laughs> there seems to be a, a common denominator of you pushing artists. Uh, I don't willing or unwillingly. I mean, Kanye seems like the type of person that's like, let's 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 go to the edge of it. Let's do something different. Whereas like Run DMC was legendary for not liking or wanting to do walk this way the way that you wanted them to do it. So how much hold handing and Jedi mind tricks and psychology? Sure. It's all psychology. It seems like. Yeah, how Life how coach. how much of that is a nightmare for you <laughs> when you just want to make the damn song and leave? It, it the my whole relationship to it has changed over the years. So in the case of Run DMC, then it was frustrating, and I didn't have the tools to deal with it. But luckily, uh, Russell called called Run and D and said, "Just do whatever Rick says." It's like Rick <laughs> wow. knows what he's doing. Just do what Rick says. So had that not happened, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been on the record. That record wouldn't have happened. So it, it that's how that happened. And even after Rockbox and King of Rock, they don't know that they're on a winning formula. Just like one one moment away from super jackpot. Well, the, the, this had less to do with it being a rock song. It had more to do with singing someone else's words. And singing someone else's, which they had never done before, okay. and singing someone else's words that they didn't necessarily like. How long did that process take? Walk this way, I'm talking. S same as everything, you know, same as everything else. The only thing that was different was because Steve and Joe appeared on the record. There was an extra day working on it with those guys playing guitar and singing singing vocals, the guys from Aerosmith. Um, with with the, the Beastie Boys... Well, first of all, I want to know who introduced. Ah, I have so many questions. Number one, the Beastie Groove Rock Hard 12 inch. Who were the Latin rascals? Because I've always I've seen their names and like all these 12 inches from 89, 83 to 85. And then poof, nothing. Who were the Latin rascals? The Latin rascals were two club DJs who worked at Shakedown. Arthur, Arthur Baker's studio, who invented, this is pre-sampler. Yes. There were no samplers mm -hmm. yet. And he, they invented a way, it was their own style of doing remixes where they would do these edits on, on um, half-inch tape where they would repeat the same, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da ah, da, ah, on... Yeah through editing so it was like it wasn't scratching there was no sampling yet and there was this other way of manipulating the music yeah and the latin rascals invented it and and they did it on all of arthur's records and um and they did a lot of club remixes and that and i can't remember what they did on that i don't remember them doing anything on those but it's possible on on this party's getting rough that little See, Philadelphia, where I come from, has a very different relationship with this party's getting rough and hold it now, hit it. You know, because Lady B and her Street Beat show that came on uh, Power 99 between like 12 and 5 p.m. on Sundays, they made a, they basically made a, a, an edit where 
they, they would play that middle sketch of this party's getting rough where it's like, oh, man, you just fessed it, man. Yo, you you fucking you didn't even turn up the boom box and all that stuff. Ah, all the all the <laughs> all that chaos in the middle. And then they attached. I don't it really to, remember it. I don't really remember. Man, what that is. Yeah, this is this is like the Philly anthem. So they made they kind of made an edit. Philly made an edit of their own of this party's getting rough and the beastie groove and just between Latin rascals and Mantronics, just the, the idea of like multiple sampling or like those crazy edits. That's all we heard. But what's even weirder for hold it now, hit it because of a pressing mistake, the initial Def Jam pressings of hold it now, hit it have the acapella as side one. Yes had the acapella as side one and the the uh, DMX drum machine version that's on the album as side two. We mm-hmm. never heard of the drum machine version in Philly ever. So when, wow. when they're playing Hold It Now, Hit It, there's no such thing as an acapella, or you jokingly called it acapulco version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought, yo, dude, it was such, it was the most radical shit we ever heard. Because our thing was like, the only way I can describe it is if you ever seen Pootie Tang and when Chris Rock asked the DJ <laughs> introduces that song of silence, like, and now this new song. Yeah. I've silence. Rick saw Pootie Tang. Pootie too good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. He's friends with Chris Rock. I don't know. It, anyway, the whole point was that we made up in our minds like, yo, these dudes are so incredible. They don't even need music. And Hold It Now, Hit It, the acapella was number one on the Power Nine at Nine for months. Wow. To the point where when we got the album and heard that drum. Now, it's weird because in Florida, every everyone from down south I know, even Premier tells this story. Like when you're getting your car system, the, the song that you tested to see if your if your uh, uh, yes, your uh, car system was right, <laughs> was holding now hit it because you like you mix your your joints loud as fuck. When we got that in Philly, we didn't know what the like yo what's this drum shit like. This ain't on the album. To this day, I will never acknowledge the album version of holding now hit. It. <laughs> I will only DJ the acapella version. But even I'd love to hear. I've never heard the acapella version. I'd love to hear it. I don't remember ever hearing it. I bet, I bet it's great. Probably better. <laughs> That's crazy. It's your label. <laughs> your production. Yeah, I it's don't the first acapella it. in history. <laughs> it's like Acapulco. I, I love that. You, Acapulco. You, yeah, you, this is the first yes. Acapulco in history. In in working their album, like how involved are you with the, with the marketing and? Because I'll be honest with you, we for two years from '85 till we purchased the album and saw the gatefold cover, I didn't know the Beastie Boys were white. We thought they were Puerto Rican, in Philly at least. <laughs> so was that by design to like not put them on the album cover and just to ride it out till? Not at all. It, the way we did it, we, we didn't. We never even thought about it. On the the seven original Def Jam singles, the Maroon label s- singles, mm-hmm. of which uh, where Rock Hard was one of those, I think that's the only Beastie record that was in those Maroon, seven. Yeah, there was an LL, there was that, there was uh, Hollis Crew, Hollis Crew, Jimmy Spicer, 
Jimmy Spicer, Jimmy Spicer. This is wow. it, y'all. Uh, I'm a girl watcher with Papa D and Papa San. I don't think that was on Maroon. Oh, okay. Well, there was also MCA and Bazooty. Yeah, yeah. That Bazooty. Bazooty is an engineer in New York named Jay Burnett. And he was the guy who turned me on to the studio that we lovingly renamed Chung King. Uh, uh, the, the original, oh. the original Chung King. The original Chung King. Wow. Yeah. And the reason I called it Chung King was I didn't want anyone to know that it was such a terrible place that we were working in. So I made up Chung King House of Metal. It was like a, just <laughs> the like a, one or the, other, the, the one before that. <laughs> the one on. Um, Varric? It was on. It's no. the Varric one. No. no, it's before the Varric one. Before the right? Varric one. It yeah. was on, was it Church Between Broom and Grand? Something like that. Makes sense. Across yeah. from the, there's that police building, you know, the police building. Mm-hmm. It was on that block, five floor walk up. The rest of the <laughs> building were like sweatshops. It was a really <laughs> weird place. It was, it was really, again, I didn't know this because I wasn't into it, but it was just a, a drug dealing place. And they yeah. had a they just had a studio, but it was mainly drug dealing, but I didn't Spe- know that. So I was speaking of which, yeah. Steve. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know uh, speaking of which, no, I didn't mean that. Steve. I was just, I'm, I'm reminiscing. I think I, I think I was at that place dropping off tapes at more, first? Uh, as an intern. Yeah. The first place. Yeah. It was, it was I was only there once though. But, but we recorded, a, we recorded um, all of the Beastie Boys stuff there. We recorded, Raising Hell there. We recorded right. a lot of the early Def Jam stuff there. You Maybe did. all of it. Maybe all of it. I, I was going to say, Steve, that that DMX drum machine that's hanging uh, in our studio. Yeah. That's Rick's. Yeah, I know. I know this is also <laughs> a way of telling, tell the world, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm the one person who knows that in this room. Oh, okay. Is that a stolen or is that no, a it, um, we No, it's... It, we, you know what? We had to re-record I Can't Write Left-Handed with John Legend, mm. and we were mm. running out of studios, and it just so happens that that was open, and when we got there, we were told this is our last day, and kind of, you know, I was like doing my fanboys thing, like, oh my God, this is the old Chung King, and da 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 and whoever the owner was, a guy, he's like, just like on some Mean Joe Green, here kid, catch. <laughs> he, um Wow. He showed me this, he's, he's, this DMX and he says, created, you know, all the Def Jam days. He's been here forever. You know, you'll take care of this. And I uh, took it. Sorry, Rick. Anyway. So. <laughs> I'll say that may, that may or may not be true. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure from Rick Rubin. It may or may I'm not sure be there's true. Multiple, like I'm sure there's multiple <laughs> DMX drum machines, but I prefer my version of it. Yeah. Um, was the, was the, just the, the floodgate of license to ill, was that scary to you or overwhelming at the time? And how were you guys treated by Columbia records by this point? We were never treated well by anybody. (laughs) Even when selling 12 million units. Yes. Even then, (laughs) man, really? Why? Yeah. So you were still Rudolph the Red Nose, the rain. I mean, was this just, was this Yetnikov period? Was this uh, uh, Matola period? Like, where was Yetnikov and Al Teller? Those were the people that I don't. Al Teller from MCA was at Columbia first. He was the president of Columbia at the time that we were there. Damn. 
The only person that I ever really dealt with on a regular basis was Jeff Jones, who's a great guy. He was a product manager, and he now runs Apple Records for the Beatles, based in London. And he's still around, and he remembers, like, he, he told me stories of things that happened back then that I didn't remember, but it was funny. Like, like with License to Ill, he, he said he goes into a meeting, he's like, well, Rick Rubin says we can't put a barcode on the outside of the cover. And, uh, you know, we have to figure out how we're going to do this because we've never done this before. And, the you know, the people in the meeting are like, who the fuck is Rick Rubin? What do you mean? It's like, we do this all, we're doing this. Of course it's going to have a barcode. And he's like, no, but Rick won't let us have the barcode. He's like, he's insistent. So, <laughs> again, I had no memory of that. But um, we, we would fight. We would fight for the art to get the art the way we want it all the time. And people just didn't know what it was. You know, just to say, there's very little understanding of what it was that we were doing. Who conceptualized the album cover for License to Ill? That was me. And what was and your... I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, I had just read the Led Zeppelin book, Hammer of the Gods, about them being on tour and all the de- debauchery of mm. uh, crazy rock stardom. And, I f- and, and there were images of Led Zeppelin's airplane in the book. And it just seemed like, wow, that's just like the height of decadence, this... A, an airplane yeah. at, with this crazy rock and roll lifestyle going on. And I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to have a Beastie Boy, a Beastie Boy air, airplane representing this sort of de- crazy debauchery, all made up. You know, none of this was true. We were kids. We were kids in school. You know, this was, uh, none of this was accurate. This was a fantasy based on loving, loving Led Zeppelin. It was the fantasy of, well, what about a Beastie Boys jumbo jet that rams into a mountain? Like that, that's like the way the story ends is the, it, it goes with this crazy rock and roll lifestyle. And I thought, well, w- because it would be a gatefold, it'd be like, you'd see the front of it and you'd think it was, you'd just think it was an airplane and then you'd open it up and you'd get the reveal of the back. And then yeah, and then when I would drive from my parents' house on Long Island into the city, I would always pass the globe um, from the that's in the centerfold, and I always thought, oh, it'd be great. Like someday, that would be a great thing to use in a photograph. And then the opportunity was with the Beastie Boys, the inner the inner sleeve. Has anyone ever? You know, it's weird when I seen it. I remember getting the album like Thanksgiving of 86. So I, I would like to think that I think the album came out in November of 86, like late November. Um, but this happened, the album cover occurred like nine months after the space shuttle challenge thing. Challenger joint. The challenger. Which like traumatized <laughs> the shit out of me. Yeah. I watched and that in kindergarten. <laughs> Yo. Yeah. And like, and so was so, I. So to buy that album and see that crash, like just traumatized me even more. So it's it's weird. Like I, I have this love, this love relationship with, with the album because it's so, you know, monumental, but it's like, ah, the nights I just looked at that album cover, like, ah, it's killing me. I didn't, I didn't know about the crash and I, it didn't, (laughs) I'll tell you now in, I knew it at the time, but I didn't know enough to be able to get it the way I really wanted it, but it never was the way I really wanted it, which was I wanted it to look more really like a photograph. And instead it looks more like a Mad Magazine cover cartoon. Like it, it's more cartoony looking than I would have liked it to be. 
I would have liked it to be like photorealist. Who's oh, wow. Will B. Ohms, the, the, the artist that drew it? Was he a friend of yours or? No, no. He was a friend of um, the guy who was our art director at the label. Steve Byram was his name. And I would just say, hey, this is the vision for the cover. How do we get this made? And then he had his friend, he commissioned it. But, which is why it didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. You know, it's like. Uh, so you seen it, were disappointed? Yeah, I, I said, this isn't real. It's like the image is right, but the way it was done was not right. It felt more like a cartoon, but it was like, well, the you know, the album's coming out and we have no time. It's like, okay. And, and the Eat Me, that was not, that was a creative yeah, license. The eat they me. did that. I didn't, <laughs> that was not my idea. So what did you think about Eminem's arms to it? Then I forgot you produced that. Record. <laughs> you produced that. <laughs> did you talk him into doing it, or did he say I wanted to Which do one? it? Which one? Eminem's album. Uh, not the music to be murdered by. It was the one before that one. It was the recovery. I have to pull up. No, no it wasn't recovery. Uh, it just came out like a year or two ago. Oh. I'm looking I don't right think now. I produced that. Yeah, we wait. Which leads me to my question, which is Rick, how do you pick your projects? Just based on liking them, like, like either liking the music or liking the artist, one or the other. Like Kamikaze. Sorry. Kamikaze. That was it. Yeah. yeah I, didn't, just, I didn't produce that. Oh, I thought you produced the last. Not Kamikaze. Yikes. Okay. I stand corrected. Well, Rick, Kamikaze really? pays tribute to License to Ill. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. As, as an album cover. Just on the back of Bill's question, Rick, how come you only did one? I noticed you only did uh, the, the Andrew Dice Clay album. Like that was your only comedian that you work with? Well, we did. I think we did five, five Andrew Dice Clay albums. Right, right. And I, I always looked for other comedians to work with, but never found. There was at one point I was interested in recording Carlos Mencia. I don't know. Wow. If you ever oh, heard wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, we and, and I think we like started talking about it, maybe even recorded a little bit, but. It just never, never came together for whatever reason. Yeah. Have you gotten so, any more requests though, comedian wise? Well, I love Gerard. I think he's incredible. <laughs> I never <laughs> thought about him doing an album, but that's a really interesting idea. Okay. He wants it. I'm sorry, Amir, go ahead. How long did you have to bug public enemy until Chuck finally relented and signed to the label? It was a really long time. It was a long time. <laughs> I want to say it felt like forever then. But it was probably nine months, maybe a year. But for at you know when you're 20 years old, a year is forever. No, that's a right. long time. And and they I, were... I had a post-it note of Chuck's number next to my phone, and anytime I would walk by the phone, I'd see it and I would call. And then Bill Stephanie, who was our first employee at Def Jam, he knew Chuck. And at one point, I got so frustrated, I said, "You have to tell Chuck." If he doesn't sign to Def Jam, I'm firing you. <laughs> like you have to convince him. He has to do this. And it's not like he wanted to sign to someone else. He didn't want to make records. That was the thing. It's like he yeah, was he retired. Said he was too old. He thought he was too old. How did you how did you feel about the Bomb Squad's production methods? Because that's the total opposite of your reduction yeah. approach. It. Loved it. I like I like different things. You know, I'm not I like all kinds of different things. I actually heard something on your on your James Brown recent uh, DJ set. Right. Maybe it was night two, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. For the first time, I heard what I think was the inspiration for the Bomb Squad that I'd never heard before. 
Wow. Um, I have to find, I'll find it and send it to you just so you have for your own reference. Oh, okay. But I think you pieced, you put the pieces of a puzzle together for me that I never knew were there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Impressive>. I see. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, during this period, at least between 86 and 89, I mean, between your work with LL, and I am curious as to why you did not produce uh, Bigger Big Endeavor. And I always wanted to know how you felt about like the L.A. Posse and I Need Love and all that stuff. But you're doing these Slayer records and not to mention like, I mean, your heart met like how what is your approach to. Are you just leading from the gut or, or do you have like an, a mapped out plan that you're explaining to the group? This is the vision I have for you. Like, how do you work with Slayer? Just going into the studio and f- first going into pre-production talking about the parts in the songs, helping make them as good as they could be, and then figuring out how to, um, in their case, it was interesting because they already were popular, a popular underground band. Like the night I saw them, they sold out the Ritz, which was pretty substantial Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. I saw them at the Ritz, blew my mind. It's like, I like heavy music. I never heard of these guys before. And this was one of the craziest, heaviest concerts I've ever seen in my life. How is this? It's like a, a parallel universe that this exists. And um, and I talked to them that night after the show and then ended up flying out and meeting them in California after that. Um, Who was their drummer? Because Dave, I've, never heard someone, I've never heard someone play double kick that intense. Yeah. <laughs> and, and <laughs> it, you know, it's not, not only is it intense, it's funky. That's yeah. the, the, he's the only of all the heavy metal drummers I've ever heard who play in that double kick drum style. He's the only one where it's groovy. Maybe him and Lars, and, you know, Lars you know who shit, else? Lars Ulrich. What? Lars Ulrich. Isn't that Lars Ulrich's thing though? That's not what Lars does. Okay. That's really? not what Lars does. No. See, Lars well, not I get- groovy. Lars does something else. So Lars some- is more like a prog, a fast prog rock drummer. So some kid at school puts me on, you know, by the time I get Nation of Millions, some kid puts me on to Rain and Blood and then uh, uh, plays. Watch uh, Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, you know, when I was listening, she watched Channel Zero and they're like, well, you know, that's that's a Slayer song and played me the original joint. And then like I started buying the records just as a completist. But yeah, trying to play that shit because there was like a, 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 a hard rock band that I joined like in high school for like, four months, but I quit because like, I can't do double foot action that good. But it's like, how did you capture those performances? Like, are there jam sessions? Are there like, guys, here's a course. Let's, or is it just like, okay, open the E, open no, E minor, no, no. just boss the wall, go. No, 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 no. They, they wrote the songs. I came in, I said, maybe this part's too long, maybe this part's too short, maybe we need another part here, but very, it's all them, it's all them, and Slayer were unbelievable, and then it was just properly recording them in a way not to screw it up, and here was a big uh, breakthrough, sonic breakthrough in my mind, was the only f- records you could hear that were that approached that speed at that time would be like Metallica's first record. I think that's all that was out. I don't even think their second record was out yet. And yeah. But but Metallica, those records were recorded like a traditional rock band. Which again, it like it goes back to the hip hop argument in the beginning. It's like 
nobody's looking at the thing for what it is to make it the best version of what it is. People are looking at, okay, well, on rock records, we use big drum sounds with long, with long, um, reverbs. The, yeah. The long Z- reverbs and long room approach. sounds. And that's what makes them sound mm-hmm. big. But if you're playing fast and if you do that, it's just a blur. You don't hear yeah, anything. It's just out. Right. Exactly. So, I'm looking at, okay, this band's incredible and they play tight and fast. And the key is how do we get it to sound like the, like you're listening to them with a, a a magnifying glass, not how do you blend it together into an impressionist painting. <laughs> um, so in the, in the case of Slayer, it was, okay, how do we make the drum sounds super tight, super tiny? Because... Mm-hmm. The speed of the drums, the only way you're going to even be able to hear it is if they're basically taps, you know, like tiny little taps. Um, So it really, a lot of it has to do with, in each of these cases of the, uh, the things that I've, on the records where I've worked on where they sound different than the records that came before them, it was only looking at them for what they are and figuring out how do we make this thing sound good, not... How do we use the baggage of the past? How do we apply old methods to this? Right. It's how do we, what's right for what this is? So how do you know uh, the difference between what to give a Slayer as opposed to like the work that you did with the cult as far as rock sounds are concerned? Now, I know, you know, like how much research do you have to put into the acts that you work with to know what their strengths and their weaknesses are? I put no research in whatsoever. But the research that I do is as a fan all the time, listening to music all the time. And I listen, and then based on what I'm hearing, I'll make suggestions just based on whatever whatever little bit that I, I've picked up from listening to music my whole life. We should probably be asking LL this, but since you were there to help make the track, what exactly went between LL and Cool Mo D that made him make Jack the Ripper? Do you I remember? That, yeah, I don't know that anything happened. I think it might have just been that. I mean, did you realize that you were making a Cool Mo D disc record? Nope. Never and one of the it. first disc records. <laughs> Yeah. Never thought about it. That, sh- that was your boy from back in the day. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say, loved like, him. loved him. You, you also never thought about it that way at all. And Can it you- kind of goes back to your go go love, too, because it was the Chuck Brown sample, the Soul Searcher sample. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot that Ashley's Roads clip is yeah. Chuck Brown. <laughs> it's not just the painted full break. <laughs> yeah. How, how, uh, what was your experience like shooting? Tougher than leather. Terrible you, experience. You directed. Yeah, I was going to say. Okay, I'm a first time director. What 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 can you what uh, what what advice can you give me? I mean, sorry, my movie's already done. So you know. okay, I was going to say if you have an opportunity not to do it, don't. Do yeah, it. leave. Wow. Yeah, okay, so tell me no. about your experience in in directing Tougher Than Leather. Uh. Well, where I didn't know what I was doing in the recording studio, it was easy because there were so few people there and the stakes were low. And on a movie set, there are many more people 
And the schedule is like, hey, I'm going to be an hour late to the studio today. Talk to you, talk to you guys later. No problem. Movie sets, not like that. It's like everything was, and yeah, and we were, our whole lives were, you know, I slept until, I never took a class before three in the afternoon when I went to NYU because I slept until probably one. And then we went out all night, every night. So the idea of showing up on a movie set at six o'clock in the morning every day, that wasn't anything that I anticipated. And that was not a, um, it was not a realistic uh, ask in the way my life worked. So it was a terrible experience and um, I wouldn't wish it on, wouldn't wish it on my enemy. Did you insist on directing that movie or was it like you had an upcoming April to do it or something like, how did you wind up holding the director's manual? Me and my friend Rick uh, wrote the idea. It was Rick. Rick was really more the writer than I, we, we would throw ideas together, but Rick was the main writer, Rick Manello. And uh, who was the guy who ran the desk at my dorm. He, so he'd be the night he would work at the dorm from midnight to six. He was the night watchman essentially. And the dorm was pretty quiet from midnight to six. Oh, wow. So I would usually get home from the club, two, three, and I would sit there with Rick and we would order food from Cozy Soupenberger around the corner and uh-huh. we would watch old, watch old movies on TV. And he was a film major and film historian, knew a tremendous amount. And then in later years ended up, you know, working with uh, Darren Aronofsky and um, oh, James Gray, James Gray, some great directors. And all of my friends who were directors would always, anytime anyone I knew who made movies had a movie question, they would all call Rick Minello because he knew more than everybody. That Rick Minello was the main scriptwriter. He He's in it too. I can't remember what his character, he was played sort of the, the sidekick guy to my guy. I uh, can't remember his his character's name. I can't remember. I really blocked out a lot about that movie, actually. <laughs> he, he was also in the Beastie Boys video uh, for No Sleep Till Brooklyn. He was like the club. You know, in the beginning, there's like a skit with a... Yeah. That's Rick Minello. So okay. he wrote... He's been in a few Def Jam uh, products. Or- yes, and he directed Going Back to Cali as well. Oh, the video okay. of going back gotcha. to Cali, which we storyboarded yeah. together at the desk at Weinstein, the dormitory at NYU. Yeah. Um, okay. So something I don't know, and I don't know if you ever went on record. I never knew how or why you left Def Jam. I just remember your name being on the executive producer for Nation of Millions. And then when I looked for your name on Fear of a Black Planet, you weren't there anymore. And then I next I heard of you, you had a funeral for the word deaf. <laughs> so nah. what I mean, why did you decide to leave uh, your 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 first love? It really had to there were two things going on. One was over the time together, however many years it was, three, four, five years. My relationship with Russell was starting to, I wouldn't say it ever turned bad because we were always good friends, but it felt like our, what we wanted was was changing. And I felt like I really loved our friendship and didn't want our friendship to end. And I thought if we remained partners, our friendship's probably going to end. So 
maybe it's better just not to be partners anymore. And then there was something going on it, it, that really triggered it, had to do with the way we were being treated by Colombia and what we needed Colombia to do to fix the situation for our artists. For example, I remember the first time we went to England and the guy at Columbia basically told us, you know, we're just not, we're not interested in your records. They said, wow. they said, we look at Columbia records in New York as an albatross and it's nothing against you personally, but because you come from them, we're just not really interested. Even though um, you're making them money. Yeah. I mean, 87, you guys are sold more units than Michael Jackson's bed. Yeah. And yeah, still it was un unbelievable. I, I, w I had a meeting with Al Teller at the time, who was the president of the company and told him all of my concerns. And I, I talked for a half hour and I got really emotional. I started crying because again, I, I care so much about this shit. It's my whole life. And, um, and at the end of the conversation, I say, you know, we got to, we have to figure out a way to fix this because if not, I have to leave. Like I can't, I can't keep doing this. I can't put my heart into this and have partners who don't care or who are not go, going as hard as they can, as hard as we're going. I can't do this. And, um, and this is after a half hour of my, I remember I had a pad and I listed all the things that were wrong in the relationship, whatever, uh, if I would have known that they put the wrong A side on the record, that that's an example that of been what would have been on the list. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but that was indicative of what it was like. It was like, nobody really cared. These guys do this shit that we don't understand. And luckily it sells, but we don't know what it is. And we don't really care what it is. We just don't want it to stop. Um, but wow. they so always you, you had this had kind of- never had a one-on-one with Yetnikoff or- you never Later. had a one-on-one -on -one with uh, Iana or, or Matola. None of those guys. Iana uh, uh, wasn't there. Matola wasn't there yet. It was so the guy Al Teller was the president of the company. Right. Matola was his boss, but he wasn't really involved in what the day-to-day -day of Columbia Records. So I had this meeting with the guy, the right person to have the meeting with. I have this meeting. I'm have a heartfelt, emotional. He's sitting there holding a baseball bat through the meeting because he, <laughs> he yeah he saw himself as kind of like tough so he's sitting there holding this baseball bat i'm talking 20 minutes 25 minutes i'm crying at the end and telling him finally that if we can't work this stuff out we can't get to the bottom of this i gotta leave and i said you know i i never signed a contract russell signed the contract i never signed anything oh. so i'm gonna have to leave and he said wait, wait a minute wait a minute what did you just say and I said, <laughs> I said, I heard. never, yeah, I said, I never signed a contract. I, you know, only Russell signed. And he said, okay, wait a minute. You're going to have to start back at the beginning. Cause I wasn't listening to anything you were saying. <laughs> oh, I wish I had my sound effect with me. <laughs> this is, a true, this, is <laughs> this is really, wow. this is real. So how long until deaf American is started? Right away, because when I left Def Jam, I had already started, like Slayer was signed to Def Jam originally, Danzig was signed to Def Jam originally, and Dice, I can't remember if Dice was, if I had already signed Dice or not, when I, I remember going out to lunch with Russell and saying, you know, this isn't going to work, I don't, the relationship with Columbia is bad, and oh, so the, what that meeting that I told you about, the start at the beginning again meeting, mm -hmm. when that meeting, after that meeting, 
I told Russell, you know, this is not good. We can't do this anymore. And the way that Columbia ended up fixing it was to write a big check to Def Jam without dealing with any of the problems. It was just a check. Mm. And Russell was cool with that. And I was not cool with that. So that was sort of the, you know what? I don't think we can do this anymore. Like this doesn't feel right. And I said to him, I said, do you want to leave the company? And he said, I don't want to leave. And I said, okay, I guess I have to leave. And it was wow. just like that. It wasn't even, just, I, I thought he might leave. And that's it. Yeah. Yikes. Cause you left before, well, you left after the beasties left, correct? Was I left it, after, after the beasties left. Yeah. Yeah. How did, um, did you and, um, like, uh, at rock or any of them, did y'all have have conversations about why you both left or what? Interest, kind of interestingly, things? interestingly, we have never really discussed it, and it's definitely an elephant in the room that would be good to discuss, and we just never did. But it, I'm sure it'll happen. It may happen next week. <laughs> like it'll <Wow>. happen. <laughs> what, what were your thoughts on Paul's boutique? Loved it. Thought it was the. I remember listening to it at the Mondrian Hotel. Me and Chuck D together. We were we were there because. I think Public Enemy was going to appear somewhere in California. I don't know whether it was a club date or a TV show. But we were at the Mondrian. We got an advance. I don't even know if it was an advance. It might have just been like from the studio, like they had just finished it. And me and Chuck listened to it. And we both thought, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. This is the future of hip hop. Like this is, it doesn't get better than this. And we were shocked that it, it was not as well received as we thought it deserved to be thing that I remembered the most, at least at your first year of Deaf American, was all the press that you got as far as the ghetto boys were concerned. How yes. did they come? How did they come across your radar? And what was it about them that drew you to them and all the ensuing uh, controversy that came with them? Like, yeah, I had never heard like NWA was already happening. Well, maybe just the Easy E album. I don't know if there was an NWA album yet. There was an Easy E album for sure. Mm-hmm. And I loved Easy E. And then I heard the Ghetto Boys and I felt like, oh, like the, where NWA was gangster, this is like hard in that way, but more like more unhinged, more like um, <laughs> horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like like violent, but not violent like a bad drug deal gone wrong. Like violent like a a, a horror movie, you know, like dismemberment, yeah. cra- crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just liked the how extreme it was. It 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 spoke to me right away. And I thought that the album um didn't sound it didn't sound as good as it could have. So I remixed the album. I didn't add anything to it, or ch- I just basically remixed the album and change the cover and change the name because they were called the Ghetto Boys G-H-E-T-T-O. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, it it sounds too ordinary. Like they could be the Ghetto Boys, but should be the G-E-T-O Boys just because it, I don't know, I just thought it was more interesting. Um, it would look better on T-shirts as well. Okay, so how, how much of, I'm, I mean, now it's like, in, in, especially in the, environment that we're in right now as far as like uh right wing republican uh christian news talking points and those things like you know now it's sort of like 
you collectively roll your eyes or that, you know, like that side of the fence is lying. But back in 1989, 90, like they it seemed like real threats. And I remember I knew the ghetto boys because one Chuck G's Chuck D's shouted them out on fear of a black planet planet album. But all the controversy of Scarface's lyrics being talking points for everybody running for Senate, any Republican running for Senate or the house using this thing, like to this, was this manna from heaven? Like for you is I had controversy no- and bad news. Like, yes, this is what I'm, I want to be the, your parents worst nightmare. This is the first time ever hearing of that being the case. What? You didn't I read? Ne- no. Ted White, t- Ted White, I think, who ran Billboard. Oh, man, no. he wrote, like, paragraphs and dissertations <laughs> of mine of a lunatic. I would have never, ever, like, the surefire way to get a 17, 18-year-old to buy this shit is because Ted White could not, a Billboard could not stop writing about how violent Scarface's mind of a lunatic was and this needs to be banned and shit. I was like, word, I'm going to buy this shit. Yeah, my parents hated it. Must be good. Yeah, I always like crazy shit. You know, I like edgy, crazy shit. It's it's interesting to me. It's fun. I mean, but you do realize, like, being parents' worst nightmare is also (laughs) like that's great marketing. (laughs) That's a record execs candy. Like that's that's so to that never excited you at all. No, I never never thought about it. Because usually I would have to get the calls more like the record company not wanting to put it out. You know, that's what I had to deal with. Like Slayer, Columbia Records refused to put out that Slayer record. So then I had to find a new way to release it, even though the first one was on Def Jam, but it wasn't through Columbia because they refused to release it. Then I made a deal with Geffen Records, which is where that went. And then in my deal with Geffen, I had to have complete creative control where they could never come to me and say, they're not going to put something out. And then when it came to Andrew Dice Clay or the Ghetto Boys, you're like, well, we're not going to put it out. It's like, the whole reason I'm at your company is because I need a safe place to put out crazy shit. That's why I'm here. This is what I do. And you'll see when you look back on it in time, it'll be the right decision. It'll be like you're too you're too close to the story now. But if you look back in history, important things often stick out like saw thumbs in their day and are hated or uh, vilified or mm-hmm. they burned Beatles albums, you know? Yeah, man. Elvis was the, de- you know, the devil. What, what was it about the Black Crows that excited you to sign them to the label? Did you sign all the acts that were at least on the first run of Deaf American to the label? Or was it like, did you have a full staff and, you know? didn't I didn't have a full staff, but there was my friend who I went to school with named George Draculius, who George I think Draculius. is- Who's been called out on a Beastie record, maybe? Well, he's also been my boss. The, 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 the few movies that I scored, uh, George, if you're clearing music in movies- George Akuliak is that that's your guy that you work with. Okay, great. So George was um at, he was an inter- it's funny. I was an intern at Def Jam when I owned Def Jam at NYU. And the reason I was an intern was because then I got school credit for working at Def Jam. Gotcha. George <laughs> oh. was George 
was my intern at Def Jam, where he got credit in the dorm. And then there was a time when he was my roommate in the dorm, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and George, he found the Black Crows, and that was his both his signing and his production. That was his vision. And the Jayhawks as well. He signed the Jayhawks and he never told the me that. Wow. I didn't know yeah. that. 100%. Hey, oh, wait. All these old Def Jam questions are coming back to me now. Um, the 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 storyline to Crush Groove, um, how much of that was actual life? I'm trying to get to the kind of uncut gems robbing peter to pay paul narrative of like (laughs) did you guys ever have like that's the storyline of having to borrow money to press up 12 inches or to keep up with all made up demand that's hollywood fakery that's none of that is true (laughs) okay just checking just checking yeah um so outside of deaf american recordings can you talk about your 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 work with with Johnny Cash and how you got him back to his glory point. Cause I, I mean, I would imagine before you two worked together, he was sort of waning in the creative department, at least like with the last four records that he worked on with you, that was like probably one of the best storied comebacks in, in a music career. What was it like working with him? coolest thing coolest thing that ever happened in my life he was a beautiful brilliant humble uh interesting quiet guy who studied history off he had a tremendous amount of wisdom that he didn't offer unless you drew him out he was pretty reserved but if you if you asked him about stuff he would tell you about it and he knew a lot about a lot of things and a tremendous amount about music and the history of country music and folk music. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount being around him. Did you get a, a chance to personally know him? Like, what, was he telling you stories of recording for Sun and that whole million dollar session thing and everything you ever wanted to know? And um, he would, I got to know him personally well. He would stay at my house when he came to LA. I would stay at his house if I went to Nashville. Um, I don't know how much we talked about old times unless there was a specific reason to, or if I had a particular interest, uh, he would tell me stories about, about, um, Sam Phillips though. Okay. Oh, wow. He loved Sam Phillips. Which artist opens up to you the most as far as, uh, I don't know if you have the same relationship with say a Jay-Z that you would with Anthony Kiedis. So I know there's different degrees of getting to know your clients as you're producing them. And I know there's an, an artist producer trust that has to be established, but I know there's different degrees of that, of like which artists, I mean, and this is not asking what's your favorite artist you ever worked with, but who's, who's the closest, (laughs) who do you know the best that you feel comfortable that you're just actual friends with, like really friends. Is it the Mars Volta guys? Is it you know? <laughs> no, I feel like I'm friends with a lot. A lot of them. I'm just thinking if there are any unique standouts. I would say the people who I've made the most albums with. That plays a role just because you're around them more. You know, there's just more hours yeah. together. 
Would that be the chili peppers? The chili peppers. Yeah, so like I've been around the chili peppers a lot. So I probably know them better than somebody who I did, you know, a couple of songs with like Jay-Z. But I feel very comfortable when I hang out with Jay-Z. I feel like we're pretty good friends. Uh, Feels good. That means you're super close with Andrew Dice Clay, though. I'm just saying, but. I was I was pretty close with Dice. I would go out every night to the comedy store after my session, and we would hang out in the kitchen of the comedy store. Chris Rock would be there often, also. Oh wow! I mean, with with the Chili Peppers, how do you how do you see their growth as from where they were in in nineteen ninety one? I assume that uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was the first time you worked with them. You didn't yes. do Mother's Milk, correct? No, no. Although I, oh. I like, I thought Mother's Milk was their best record to date. That was mm-hmm. the Mother's Milk was the record that made me excited to work with them. Okay, so how is it working with them and managing their, you know, whatever you have to juggle to make it right, as opposed to uh, once they they became more like a comfortable shoe that you were familiar with. Uh, I, I'll say I think it's the same. I, I, I don't think, um, I think the goal is always to treat people respectfully and honestly. And that happens regardless of how deep the relationship is. I don't, I don't think that changes. It's pretty much the, the thing we're there to do looks the same either way. The only other thing that I'll say with the artists who I've made many records with, another like System of a Down, I made all of their albums Mm-hmm. With with the bands that that I've worked with several times, there be, there gets to be a shorthand where, like, usually the first record we make together, same Tom Petty, all all of them, the first record we make together takes the longest because we're like filling each figure, other out. Yeah, like figuring out a vocabulary of how we're gonna do it. But once that's established, it, it's much easier after that. But only only out of just that decoding, you know, decoding the system. Do you prefer piecemeal projects as far as getting, uh, uh, you know, they just say, look, I just want one song. Like you did one song on Justin Timberlake's record for future sex uh, sounds. Oh, damn. That sounds love, like love sounds. Chili. Future sex love sounds. <laughs> future sex magic sounds. I don't know. Yeah. Love sounds. As opposed to doing an entire album. What what would you what do you prefer? I I really like making albums. I don't like doing songs because I, I I think the the nature of the process to get to an album to get to one song or to get to an album could be the same amount of experimentation. Do you know what I'm saying? Like to right. to I find know, yeah. the voice. If you're working on one song, it takes just as long to figure out what that is. It may be longer because in, in a way, when you're working you on a- you only got book, one shot. Yeah. You only got one shot and it's hard to even mm-hmm. know the way in. But sometimes you'd be working on 20 songs and one song, you're like, oh, that's the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now we know how it's all going to work. Do you, do you ever run into a situation in which where that trust isn't isn't there- where, you know, an artist is stubborn. They feel that, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm giving a hypothetical example. I don't know, like, if you can tell Adele, okay, 
sing this shit again. Give me take nine and she'll knock it out the part as opposed to, again, convincing the Beastie Boys that Fight for Your Right is is the song and trust me on this one. Like how much trust me on this one, in quotes, do you have to go through in your post in your post Def Jam, post American recordings career? It's like now in terms of like working with Neil Diamond or yeah. even James say, oh, Blake. Yeah. Almost never. Almost never trust me on this one. I don't like that. My the goal is to and I always say at the beginning of of a project, it's like Everyone has to like it. Everyone here has to love it. If I love it and you don't love it, we failed. If you it's love it and I don't love it, we failed. It just means we haven't gone far enough if we don't all love it. Have you ever had to walk away from a project? I've never had to walk away, but I've been walked away on. Mm. I'm not a quitter. I don't I don't quit pro- projects. But there've okay. been there've been a I could tell you I could tell you about a couple uh Okay, tell us. We tried. Like, I started an album with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. When? uh, 10 years ago, 12, 12, about 10 years ago. And it was a, and there was a case of there being a lack of trust, but the lack of trust more had to do with themselves, like within the band. Like, here's another interesting thing. When the Chili Peppers first asked me to produce them, it was before Blood Sugar Sex Magic, it was two albums before that. Freaky Sally, Freaky Sally. I think it was Freaky Sally. The one, the the one where it was all of the original members. And I remember a friend of mine, Mofo thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Whichever one had all of the original members, because a friend of mine said, who loved them, said, "If you're ever going to produce the Chili Peppers, now's the time. It's all of the original members. This is the time." So me and Adam Harvitz, Beastie Boy Adam Harvitz, went to a rehearsal in LA on Sunset Boulevard of the Chili Peppers at that time. And there was just a weird, bad vibe in in the room. Had nothing to do with us. It was just between them. It felt shady. And I didn't know what it was. Now I've come to learn later it was drugs, but I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know what to look for at that time. Yeah. I just felt like before this. Helena Slovak died, I think. It was before yeah. he died. Yes. Yeah. But there was the sense that these guys don't trust each other. Like they 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 didn't look at each other with like it just felt shaky. The whole thing felt shaky. And it felt like, I don't really think this is right for me to be around. Like, I don't know how to do this. And another one was uh, Joe Cocker. Oh, I went man. into the studio with Joe Cocker. I had, it's a, at the time that I produced ACDC, and I got Malcolm Young to play rhythm guitar on the Joe Cocker record, Mike Campbell from The Heartbreakers, Ben Mont from The Heartbreakers, it was a really good band. It was a really good session. And Joe, I wanted it to be a very raw, guttural, emotional album. Mm-hmm. And Joe saw himself more like Sting. He wanted it to be more like a Sting album. Mm. Like Jazzy Sting? Like, Summoner's Tales? Like, or like, like very produced. Like 155 ver- takes. Adult. Very adult. Yeah. Ah oh, man, uh, he wanted he wanted he wanted his Grammy moment. And Mercury falling, thing. And I just <laughs> it, so it wasn't it wasn't so much as I don't feel like I quit. It was just like our visions were so different that it just no one was really interested. We didn't. Nobody wanted to make the same thing, so that one didn't happen. 
Yes, but considering how many albums I've made, I could count on one hand, less than one hand, how many times it has not worked out. You mentioned ACDC, and I'm going to forget this question. Are are they? Do they have an iota, or or are they even remotely aware of how much flick of the switch has changed your life personally? Other than what I told them, you know, I told I would tell them it's like their their music. They have the no pinnacle. idea that that one note has fed. Oh, uh, is that where it's damn- from? I don't even know. I just randomly <laughs> the switch. No, uh, no idea. Rock the bells and just the 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 trademark Rick Rubin <laughs> noise is okay. I always wanted to know if, if I wouldn't AC- have even known. It's so funny. I wouldn't have even known that that's what it was. I really? just literally every time it's like, oh, I think it's on an ACDC record, and I just hunt through every track until I find something that find does something that- like that. Ah, oh, man, yeah. that's very hip hop of you. Rick. Okay, so <laughs> LL's uh, sophomore record. It's an interesting, unusual, unusual story. I don't believe I've ever told it publicly. Um, at the time that I met L, he was being raised. His mom was in the picture, but he was mainly being raised by his grandmother. And he didn't know his dad. And then we made our first album together. And then he became LL Cool J. Mm. Probably 17 at that time. And then... LL's dad appears. Oh, wow. And he comes back, and LL obviously wants his dad. And his, and Russell was managing LL. And LL, if I remember correctly, fired Russell and hired Jimmy, his dad, to be his manager. And I just, I just felt like it was a bad vibe. Like it, we, I never discussed it with L. We never talked about it. It just felt like something's going on here that's dark. And this is not energy for me to be around. This good is not going to come from this situation. And I just sort of bowed out. And then it ended up, it ended up turning bad. Um, sometime, I don't know how much longer, but I think there were ended up being problems between Ellen and his dad after that, but it, it just, yeah, it, it just felt too shady felt too. Um, I didn't like that. They were not nice to Russell when Russell really cared about L like firing a guy who was really working for you. This new guy coming in the scene kind of under questionable. Yes. He was his dad, but still, why wasn't he his dad before he was a little cool? Jay? <laughs> right. It was just, it just felt very weird can you explain to me what exactly was your role in Jesus and in the life of pablo because to to see the credits on the albums i'm just assuming that you're in a room with over 12 to 20 chefs and everyone's just throwing ideas in well, just based on looking at the album credits, like exactly. Um, it's not a, not exactly how it worked. Kanye built up the material over years for the for that what ended up being Yeezus. Okay. When he first came, he he called me. He called me and said, "Hey, I want to come over and play you my new album." Okay. It's like great. He came over 
and we listened to three hours of music. Yo. With Whoa. almost no vocals. What? Like just, yes. And it's like, wow, cool. It's like off to a good start. What do you, you know, what are you thinking? You're going to, you know, make, you think you'll finish next year or something? And he's like, it's coming out in three weeks. <laughs> wow. And I said, what? It's like, it made no sense. And then, and I played on Black Sabbath. I said, you know, I have this Black Sabbath album that's done and mastered and that's not coming out in three weeks. That's coming out later than that. It's like, this, this is what it sounds like when it's coming out in three weeks. And, um, and he said, I want you to help me finish it. I want it to be like, uh, let's finish it. And, and it was a, terrifying experience because I'd never worked on anything like that. I don't like to work on a deadline ever anyway. It's like, mm -hmm. I always feel like it, it sort of happens how, as it's supposed to happen. Some things happen very quickly. Some things take a long time. LL's first album probably took less than a month to record. And when I say less than a month, meaning a song a day that's on the album over the course of a month, mm -hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Not in the studio every day for a month, like, I got a new track. Let's go in on Thursday. That happening, totaling a month. Whereas the first Beast, where the first Beasties album was probably two years in the making. Mm -hmm. And it just took really? that long. It just took, not every day. Again, it was yeah, like. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. It just takes a long time because the you're waiting for the ideas to come. It's like, it's not pre-written. We're writing it. Now, now most of the artists I work with we don't go into the studio until it's mostly all written. So it's a different, it's a different experience. And that could happen in a much shorter time. Wait, so did Kanye already have his verses written, but they just weren't on, on the tracks? No, no. Well, it wasn't even clear what the songs were going to sound like or what was going to be on the album. It was a, a very wide range of songs and it was super cool. It was cool. I've come to learn that's the way he works. This was, I'd never worked like that before, so it was unusual to me. To him, it was standard. In the past, when I've said he wrote, you know, half of the lyrics on the last two days, that, like, I'm saying he doesn't care about it. That's not at all the case. Right. Mm -hmm. It's his process is living with it. He's singing to himself internally all the time, and he doesn't like to commit. He doesn't commit it down until it's going to stay because – Otherwise, it's going to change. So he doesn't, like if he would have done, if he would have played me songs with vocals done, the album already would have been out. Right. In the right. way he works. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember whatever day that Yeezus came out, I remember texting you maybe like three days before just on some, okay, is it going to happen or not? Because I... I think they had a, a a pushback date or whatever. It was like a a date that was supposed to come out and it didn't. And you were like, we're literally in the middle of trying to wrap up right now. And I was like, wait yeah. a minute. If you're in the middle of trapping right like doing it right now, then is the record pressed up and like I'm thinking in terms of the old system where you had to turn it in three months ahead of time, factory, all those yeah. things. And literally, well, even with Pablo, you guys were still editing and changing it. And next thing I knew, I had three different versions of the Pablo record because he just kept changing it over again. 
I remember when we finished Jesus and it came out about a week later, a week or two later, uh, Kanye came to the studio in Malibu and just we just started talking about what do you think's next? Like, what do you think the next one's going to be like? And he was kind of excited to at least start marching in a direction. And we just started brainstorming and we had an idea then that actually ended up, it ended up not being so much what, not so much what Pablo's like, but it has come around to that eventually. But the but after we had a similar conversation, the end when Pablo got delivered, I was in Hawaii, and I remember getting you know new versions of the album every day to listen to and give my notes. And I was giving notes every day. It's like I just listen. I would drive up and down the the road here in Kauai and listen and like okay. This is, you know, this is working. Let's remix this. Let's try this. And whatever notes, you know, anything that I could add to help make it better. Um, and then I talked to Kanye again, like it was now a ritual a couple of weeks after the record comes out. And um, and I say, oh, so what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you working on? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm working on this mix on uh, so-and-so. It's one of the songs on Pablo. It's like, that's out. What are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, it's out, but I'm not done yet. Like, really? It's like, I, I, it just like blew my mind. The that, conversation blew my mind. That you still because do that. Yeah. Up until, well, up, yeah, in my, over the course of my life, once it came out, that was it. Done. Yeah. <laughs> so to just that, his ability to see past, well, just because that's the way it always is, that means the way it is. No, it's like, if I want to change it, I'll change it. And I'll change it as many times as I want. It's like, it's incredible. Blew my mind. Loved it. Wow. To me, hearing hearing the Yeezus record, um, and, you know, I'll admit that I consume most of my music now via my iPhone and my computer, not in the same way that I would have, you know, 20 years ago, like put it in the stereo and listen. Yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. So at first I was, I was, the mix was just really harsh to me. And then once I heard it, in Madison Square Garden with no drums. I mean, the thing was like drums is almost non-existent on this record. And then I realized that, oh, wow. This album was made for stadiums and stadiums only. When you guys are working in the studio, are you blasting the music at the highest levels possible? Like, is he violating the don't kill your ears in the studio thing or... Because I was taught, like, when you're in the studio, you're supposed to have soft volume. So that way you don't kill your ears when you're mixing. Yeah. But I know, like, rappers, um, not to peg them as, quote, rappers, but I know that we, you know, want to hear that shit loud and, you know, hit the ox button now. Like, that sort of thing. But <laughs> uh, we listen. We listen at realistic levels. So, in other words, if the thing we're making is meant to be heard loud, we listen to it loud and we don't have giant speakers. We just use regular, you know, like uh, the monitors that would sit on the desk. We don't use big giant monitors. Um, okay. Kanye uses some, some big ones with, with um, that are much louder than the ones that we have in the studio that I always request it to be turned down because it's too much for me. Oh, I see. Um, you're ten, for a while, you were president of Columbia Records. Why did you decide to take a desk job? And why, I mean, how, how was that experience for that, that, that tenure as president of Columbia? 
Uh, it was not a desk job, which is why well, I entertained I said it. that in quotes, air quotes, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And my thought was, the thing that I do on records has, has very little to do with music. It's like my style of production, it, it, would, it would work regardless of whether it was music. It's like a way to look at things. Mm-hmm. It's a recontextualization of what we're working on and solving problems. It, it ha- I happen to do it mostly in music because that's just how it ended up. Right. But the idea was to apply the same, like what would it be like to produce a record company? Wow. And, um, and there were other people to do the, the desk work. And this was to be more of a helping curate the best artists, helping the artists make the best records that they can. So basically the same thing that I do, except on a bigger scale. And at the time, we, by the time right till the end there, Columbia Records went from sort of a not great roster to maybe the best roster in the business at that moment in time. The corporate politics of it were not something that that suited who I am. And I didn't, engage so basically it'd be like if you're running for a office for office and you're fighting with so you're in a debate with someone who's screaming at you and lying and cursing i'm not doing that so ultimately the the situation worked in a way where it it wasn't really good it could mm-hmm. have been great and it creatively was great but had had the politics not come into it, I think we'd still be doing it and be. Will you it. ever establish a label? Well, I don't know. If there's a need to establish a label in 2020, but <laughs> whatever the 2020 version of starting a Def Jam or or Def American or Columbia, will you ever dive in that pool again? Or are you fine with the zone that you're in right now? If there are any acts that I want to work with, which are few and far between, that I want to sign, then I have a relationship with Universal where I can sign an act, and it'll be on American, and it'll come out, and I don't have to have a staff. It's like they they do the record company part, and I could be right. the creative partner. And that feels about right. I mean, if there was a reason to reinvent a label or help them get better... Uh, I'd be open to discussing. It's like I like making. I like the challenge of making something good, whatever it is. Like figuring out how do we make this better. Uh, I always wanted to ask you about Sir Mix a lot, man. Yeah, <laughs> what led to you signing yeah, my I buddy? Uh, yeah, shout yeah. out to my my buddy Dan Charnis, um, who yeah, used to great. work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Dan's Dan, great. Yeah. yeah, and he brought up a real. We had him on the show like when we first started, like a couple years back. And he brought up a really interesting thing I never really noticed about you of like he, he noticed that you kind of tend to go for kind of nasally MCs like ad rock, mix a lot. You know, what I mean, they have that kind of similar tone. Um, so I was curious to know, like, what how did you find out about mix a lot and what led to you signing him? Uh, Love the record Posse on Broadway. Yes. Yes. Well, that's well, the one. It was your record. Yes. No, and I well, no, nah, that mean, was nasty mix. I knew Posse that on Broadway but- was on. <laughs> this, this is all I'm saying, and I'm so glad you brought this up, Fonte. How did you? I never, well, as a Philadelphian, I feel guilty for not mentioning 
what your relationship to PSK was and by the transit of Axiom, how did you feel about the way the entire West Coast sort of ate up that particular style? Because that was with Sir Mix-A-Lot. That was especially with the first NWA record. Mm-hmm. Every song was in the names and you like it was practically the West Coast. Like, were you at all aware of the blueprint that License to Ill gave to the entire coast? Not really. I think probably too close to to see. I also, you know, I, I come to realize later that Brass Monkey, like there was no such thing as Miami bass before Brass Monkey. So it's like it it led to a lot of different, it had different tentacles that inspired people in different ways. No, no doubt. Man, so it makes a lot how you like Pisces on Broadway and then how'd you go about it? Yeah, I just reached out to him and said, hey, if there's ever an opportunity to work together, I'd love to do it. And then it ended up working out. He's like, well, I'm on my own label. I don't really want to do that now. But And then eventually he came around and was like, yep, I think I'm ready to do this. Let's do this. Was Baby Got Back on American? Was that on American? Yes. Oh, okay. That was on the uh, that was on the Mac Daddy album. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I and I can't remember. I've heard Mixalot say that I changed the tempo of it drastically <laughs> in a way that he loves, but like that I heard it differently than he heard it. I don't really remember that, but that I've heard him say that. He's saying that you physically slowed it down? I think I sped it up. He sped it up. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I, I I honestly I don't remember it at all. He would he would know better than I. I was gonna say just back on your American Steve's there was a record you signed that was, it really took me by surprise that you signed them because it was unlike anything that you had ever signed or worked with before. Uh, the record, The Knots, were also, and I don't even know if you even remember. Shit! The Knots yeah. was on American? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was that was a Dan Charnas signing. That was a Dan, ah, that okay. was a Dan Charnas. I love that The air album, is my man. shit. And Quest of Bad Lad. I forgot. Yep, Quest of Bad Lad, too. Is that Dan All Charnas of- as well? I think so. Damn. Yes. Okay, I totally forgot about those two. So with your A&Rs, you just pretty much let them kind of do them, just like if y'all like it, if y'all believe in it, I'll fuck with it. Like, what was your yeah. role in it? It was, a, it was a combination. It's like if they were really passionate, either I had to like it too, or if they were really passionate, it's like this is the one. The whole idea of having more A&R people was not just to find stuff for me. It was like if someone really was in love with something, then mm-hmm. it was exciting to see what could happen. And and it worked out in the case of the, if you like those records that Dan signed, and if you like the Black Crows that George signed, then it worked. I got one more music question before I ask you my last question, because mm-hmm. we could be 12 hours. Working, at, well, I know that you produced, and I'm I'm a, a, a big fan of The Strokes. I know that you worked on uh, The New Abnormal. Uh, first of all, did that title come up in... Very last minute, no. In in relation to where we are now, because that 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 sort of a apropos title did not. It just it was a title that that um, that Julian came up with the pre pre virus, and it's again just sort of a the universe conspiring to make the art right. I'm assuming that they recorded out in Hawaii with with you. We recorded in Malibu. Okay. Which I think is kind of different than all the studios that they previously record, recorded their music in. So how hard was it to get the the well-oiled machine of what the Strokes represented, especially 
in in the early aughts, and I know there was so much pressure on them to be the next big thing, in quotes. Like, how much of that was on their minds making this record? Because I can only assume that they took a 10-year hiatus because of the pressure of living up to something that they couldn't sort of jump over, a hurdle that they couldn't match or whatever. Well, I think the the first record they put out was their considered their like breakthrough. That mm-hmm. was the one. Yeah. That's the one that sort of lit everything up. And yeah, then the second al- the second album seems like it didn't change the world but continued that. And then since then it's been more hit and miss. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I don't think they felt a tremendous I don't I didn't get the sense that they felt a tremendous amount of pressure. I, I think they felt like let's make another album because that's what we do. We haven't done it in a while and hoping it would be good. You know, they, it, it's another like the Chili Peppers. They had asked me to produce an album eight or 10 years ago and uh, they sent me demos and I listened to demos and I just, I couldn't hear, I couldn't imagine how this, like how to make something that interesting with what they sent. Like it didn't, it was just not a good starting point. And, but um, and but did, if that's did, a no did, from you, is does that filter to them that oh shit, this might be bad? I don't know. I just I just said I don't think this is right for me. I don't I don't see how to do this. And then on this album, they sent me demos, and these were probably the worst quality demos I've ever gotten from any artist. In that. One track might be a 30-second voice note on the phone. Like real, very, very basic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> thumbnail sketches. And I listen to that these, and it's like, oh, this is going to be great. We got to make this. It's like I could, t- I could f- feel what was there was inspiring. It's like you could listen to a 20-second clip and go, oh, if there was a song that sounded like this 20-second clip, I'd listen to that all day. Let's make that. So is that the beginning of working with you? Like one has to send the roughest sketch of a song before you can see the light to see how you can develop it? Or does everyone do the Kanye thing where it's damn near completed and then you just, you can add the finishing touches to it? There's no rule. There's no rule. It's um, like, have you ever built an album from the ground up? Like, okay. Songwriting session. Less songwriting sessions, but like with the Chili Peppers, I would come to rehearsals pretty early on. We would probably go through, they might they might have written a hundred songs for every album we did. And we would talk about them and narrow them down. And What was it about Under the Bridge that attracted you? The way that it happened was um, just based on the lyric. It was a lyric that I found in Anthony's book of... of uh, poetry and i asked him what song is this and he said oh, it's not really a chili pepper song that's more of a like personal thing more of a poem and i said well how would you sing it if you were to sing it and he sang it for me he's like he said it's like it's a ballad it's not it's not a chili peppers thing uh-huh. and um and he sang it to me and i said it's really beautiful and people like the chili peppers not necessarily because you're a funk band with rap lyrics people like the chili peppers because they like the music you four guys make and if this is an example of something good that you make 
I think, I think people accept that. It's like, that's, you don't have to put such a limitation on what, a, what the band is. It's like, it's about, the band is about the people in it. It's what, mm-hmm. what's so great about the Beatles. If you listen to their early records and their late records, they don't sound like the same band. And that's just in seven years, that arc. It, is there an act that uh, you never, with the exception of Bill Withers, and I know nah. your stories of you pursuing him, um, yeah. is there an act that you would have liked to have worked with that you never got a chance to, alive or not alive or disbanded or not disbanded? Yeah, well, obviously, Beatles or Led Zeppelin or any of the greats would be <laughs> Like, has be McCartney really ever fun. approached you about producing a record or Fishbone I, or, you know... Yeah, I met with McCartney and talked about making something. It has not yet happened, but you never know. I, I would be int- interested to see how that works. What made you settle down into the podcast world? And was it the allure of doing it with Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Hetland? Or like, why do you, why is that now another part of your <laughs> resume? What? Wait, can I give a small preface for this yeah. question? Yeah. So I did your very first podcast, correct? Was that something like that? One of the, one, one of, of the very one of the first them is like the pilot, but yeah, Amir, you're in there. Okay, I literally had no idea what I was walking into because you know sometimes my business be just a little bit janky. So <laughs> I was I was on my way to the studio thinking I was doing a QLS episode. because it was the same studio wherever we interviewed uh, Heather Park. Hunter or that jazz studio that Steve recommended. I got there and it was like, oh, shit, I'm here to do a QLS episode with Malcolm Gladwell. And then I was like, wait, where's where's Laia and everyone at? And then I was like, wait, Rick Rubin, you're on this episode, too. And I just winged it. And about 20 minutes into it, I realized, oh, I'm here. I got to read my emails better. I'm here to do nah. their That's podcast. an interview you got to prepare for, right, Amir? Like being interviewed by at least those two. Sometimes I fly out the seat, you know, with with just freestyling a, a a podcast show and having no clue what I'm there for, and just getting lucky. So when I did their episode, I literally went to that building, thinking it's a Malcolm Gladwell episode of Questlove Supreme, mm. <laughs> and then when I saw Rick Rubin's face on the television thing because he did it by monitor, I was hella confused. I was like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? And so, I had to run in the other room and like call like, wait, what am I doing? Just you're doing someone's fuck. I didn't know this. So But yeah, Rick, talk about why you even chose to put that into your yeah, I, I uh was friendly with Malcolm and I loved his podcast, Revisionist History. And he told me he had an idea to to do a new podcast uh, around music and asked if I would be interested in being involved. And I thought, I'm a fan of his work be fun. It's like dudes up with Malcolm. I wouldn't have normally, uh, I probably wouldn't have chosen to do a music podcast on my own at that time, just because I feel like talk about music most of the time in my normal life. It's almost like the podcast would be to talk about something else that I'm interested in. I I don't even know what that would be. Like there are a lot of things. So it's hard to say. I never thought about it, but this was more his invitation made it seem like, oh, that'd be fun. I love what he does. So maybe I'll learn something about podcasting, doing something with him. Yeah, it seems like y'all don't ever have to worry about guests. So I, I was I was kind of cramming and I was listening. Yeah, the Andre episode. The Andre, the Andre. Re- I was just no. about to say, like, yeah, that was like, especially when y'all talked about like beyond moments. We were, I had made a note about that and the moments that are just beyond. 
and you were talking about how just these moments in your life where it's like if you did not do one thing, these other things wouldn't have happened. Like if you would have stayed in Chicago, <laughs> Chicago, right, babe? We were listening together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we have a lot of mutual friends in common. So just hearing of your evolution, your spiritual evolution, your physical evolution. You know, you you've been definitely uh, uh, kind of a a a life goal mission for me at least where you are with your life and everything like what's your Beautiful. daily routine and i know like surfing has played a part of it and all that yeah, stuff I, in in Kauai now i've been doing a 90 minute walk every morning on the beach barefoot a lot of sun and listening to podcasts that 90 minutes that's that's where i listen to if i listen to one of your pieces it'll be while i'm walking on the beach and that's <sighs> the very first thing every day and i get that out of the way and then i can start focusing on work or whatever else there is to do for the rest of the day. But I feel like having that right when I wake up, because if I wait, if I wait an hour, I won't do it. Facts. That's me. <laughs> Facts. And if I wait an yes. hour, not only will I won't do it, I'll eat. You do something. Yeah. You do some. Fuck well, I'll definitely it. eat because if I'm sitting around <laughs> and I'm hungry. If I'm walking for 90 minutes, I'm not thinking about food because I'm involved in the podcast or book on tape and I'm walking and enjoying myself. Yeah. And, and my mind is completely <laughs> occupied because I'm very, you know, I, I listen to things that I'm interested in and learn stuff and it's great. I look forward to it every day. I feel like I run out of time, you know, like I, I listen in the car on the way. I listen on the beach walk. I listen on the way back. And then usually I have stuff to do to start my day. And it's like, mm -hmm. But but I have so much more research to do. I have so many more things to listen to, and I run out of time. <laughs> yeah. What has quarantine been like for you, uh, Rick? What, like what? What is what? Changes quarantine, like just kind of how we're in quarantine now and kind of being locked down. What has it that been like for you? It, it hasn't changed so much other than the fact that we're in Kauai because normally we wouldn't normally be in Kauai. Now we'd be in Malibu. But because mm -hmm. Malibu is locked down, Kauai is locked down too. We were here in over the holidays and we were going back to start, I was going back to start a new Avit Brothers album first week of March. And then I got a call days before saying, hey, stuff's getting sketchy. We're thinking maybe we should just stay home. And it's like, perfect. I'm staying here. You mm -hmm. guys stay home. Let's, you know, let's wait yeah. a minute and figure out what's happening. And that leads us to today. How right. severe is it in Hawaii right now as far as there there are no cases on the island, which is unbelievable. All this of island, them? there's no okay, there, there are seven islands of Kauai. I was about to say they're, you know, half hour flight apart. Uh but this yeah, this one has none. And Kauai has like a, a lower population than yes, other ones, it's so. very few people and they're far apart. And it's a great place to be on quarantine. Again, we if we weren't here, I don't think we would have come here for it. But the fact that we were here and the opportunity arose seemed like a good choice. The the universe again was smiling on us. Yeah, I might do you still do you still have those uh, those dogs? I saw you once with the dogs with the 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 mop heads. Yes, and I have I have one. His name is Champa. I had two before him named. No, the current dog's name is Cielo. The two prior were Champa and Monday. Champa and Monday passed away at 18, 19 years old. And now Champa is Monday's brother, 
brother's son, I think. So in the family. (laughs) (laughs) And he's probably 12 now. It wasn't a pack of them. I could have sworn I seen like a family of them. I had two before and now I have one. I saw one and then the other one, the the other would follow wherever one would go. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. I I, wanted to know, man, do you still, uh, when you're working out your ideas, um, are you like still making tracks or does it start on an instrument? How do you flesh out the ideas that you may have? It really depends. I don't, I don't do it for the sake of doing it. So it's more like if there's a reason to make something, if there's a, if I'm working on a project that needs a piece of music that needs to start with me, which I'd prefer not to do. I like, I like collaborating. I like hearing something and finding pieces that I could make into the thing that, that I want to make as opposed to starting from scratch. If I have to start from scratch, I can, but it's not my favorite thing to do. Um, and if it is, I'll either make a beat on a drum machine or I'll start with a sample and then build up a track around the sample and then, either keep the sample in, remove the sample, mess with the sample. Yeah. Are you using like Ableton or like what software? We usually do everything in Pro Tools, although it's still Pro Tools, you know, just still out of, you know, I don't know any better and I don't know how to run Pro Tools. I don't really, I'm not a technical person at all. I just can say, I like it like this. Let's change this beat. When you take on a project, do you stay on that project or are you able to hop from project to project? Like, uh, okay, I'm going to work with Chili Peppers at the studio on Monday and then run to do the Dixie Chicks next week over there and blah, blah, blah. Like, or are yes. you just a, I do, you, you hire me and we, if it's over three months, then we're in trouble. Like, how yeah. do you schedule I, the, your, the, the, fir- the first one? Because the, the, it's, I don't think it's possible to say, we're going to put three months on hold. And in that three months, we're going to make the best album the world has ever heard. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in that. I, I don't believe it's possible. It, maybe some people can do it. I don't know. I don't know how that works. So every project has its own rhythm. And as I said, sometimes it happens very quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. And I don't, I try not to do it as much as possible based on my schedule. It's always about the artist schedule. And when I say the artist schedule, I don't mean the artist schedule of when they want to go on vacation. I mean the artist schedule of when the the idea is hot. You know, when the songs are ready, we have to find a way that when the moment is right to make it, that we can make it. And I can think of very few times in my life where it hasn't worked out, where at a time I might've been making five albums at the same time, uh, back in the days when I would have to go from studio to studio, it might be we're doing overdubs with this artist and I'm working on just vocals with another artist on a different album at a, at the same time. Maybe I do noon to noon to three with one artist and three to six with another artist that way, or maybe I'm doing pre-production with one and working on mixing with another. And it could be as many as you know, four or five or six going on at the same time. It's not unusual because some of them could go on for years, you know? Do you they, work as a they, team they, or they alone? Go, I work with engineers and each project, usually I try to have an engineer dedicated to that particular project. Okay. It's like a tag team partner. So, hmm. and, and also... I like to work, like in the old days, I used to work all night and drive home as the sun was coming up. Now I'm on an early schedule 
So I like to have the session start at like noon or one, and I like to be done by six. Now that doesn't mean like on the Strokes album, which uh, we just you know made recently, just came out three weeks ago or something. Right. I would come from noon to six, and then I would leave a list, a to-do list, so the band could go on working as late as midnight if they, you know, they band could work as long as they want and have a list of things to do in addition to anything that they would want to try on their own. And then the next morning I would come in and we would review what happened the night before and then we would start on the day's work. I got to try that. Yeah, and 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 I've also, by by making a lot of albums, I've come to realize when my voice is particularly helpful in the process. And sometimes it's in pre-production, it means a lot. In the basic track, it means a lot. Getting the vocals, it means a lot. But many of the other times during overdubs, during guitar solos, I usually, if I trust the artist, I let them do it. And then I might come in like with Tom Morello if we're doing on either a Rage record or an Audio Slave record, he'll do solos on everything. And then I might come in and say, you know, those are all great. And this one's not as good. Like we got to, and then maybe redo this or... If there's ever ones where it's like, let's work on this one together. For some reason, if he if he can't crack the code on his own, then we'll do it together. But I, I don't like to hold an artist's hand. I don't like to... Um, ultimately, if the artist feels like they've done everything themselves, that's the best feeling for me. Like, I don't want... I don't want it to... I don't want the process to be about me. Well, life lessons. <laughs> one and only life lessons rick rubin don't make Thank it you, about man. you and walk first thing in the morning <laughs> <laughs> don't want the process before, to be ugly before you, uh, before you bullshit. see that's the one thing because you know who downstairs always says see rick rubin walks early in the morning and you don't do that so now i'm yeah. gonna have to wake my ass up at six in the Race morning up on your shit or just i saw do a guy whenever you wake up whatever your first thing is just do nah, it first because i'll i'll create a bunch of excuses i i have to get up at six and walk all right thank you rick i will now reach my goal of 220 pounds i'm gonna walk because rick said because rick said so Anyway, Rick, I dude, this is this has been what like four years in the making. Yes, exactly. Yes. Shout out oh, to Dave. Shout out to Dave. I have, bucket list Dave. I have a suggestion, quest, which is every day mm-hmm. for the next. Let's make it three weeks. When you go on your walk, just send me a message at the end saying I walked this long today. Ooh. Just just a little check in, like, hey, I did this today. Accountability. I will do partner. so. Yes, Just I'm about accountability, and accountability partner. I'm about great. accountability and I'm about integrity. Life coach. Yes, about integrity. 220 is right around the bend. I'm ready for this shit. Thank and you. Then send a group text to all of us and we'll go, yeah, we finished ours too. Y'all going to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so on behalf awesome. of... Uh, Rick Rubin. Yes. Yes. On behalf of Sugar Steve, Unpaid Bill, Bahia, Fronticolo, and the great and comparable Rick Rubin. Four years we've been dying for this. My name is Quest Love. This is Quest Love Supreme. We will see you on the next go round. Thank you.
What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.